<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to another episode of Without a Country. Just adjusting my headphones there. Uh, Alfred is here because I am very sick today. Um, that's, you'll hear it in my voice perhaps, but I'm still here. I masked up and I made my way here. I don't have COVID. I think I just have a flu. Um, but it went around the guys we fucked studio. Now it's going around in my body. I was the last to get it. And uh, so Alfred is here because um, this is the first time I could walk today. <laughs> Very dramatic. I decided that for, for uh, moving forward, I'm going to treat all illnesses like I'm a man and really lean into them. Although I was trying. I was trying. I was going to work out today and I was like, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but anyway, the news doesn't sleep when you have the flu. So here we are. Um, uh, excuse me in advance for the nose blows that I'm going to have to stop and do, but I think it's nose blow is better than hearing a sniffle. I think if people voted occasional nose blow better than constant sniffle, that is my vote for sure. Oh, look at how handsome he is. Alfred's at his favorite place, Gas Digital Studios Network, right? You love it. Look at that face. Look at that face. That's a good face. That's a good face. <laughs> look. He's growling at himself. <laughs> That's you. That's you, Bubba. That's you. All right. Uh, okay. So let's get right into the show. I don't really have any re recollection of what happened this week. I know I talk sometimes at the top. Wow, I look rough. Okay. Um, I, I know I uh, talk sometimes at the top of what I did this week. I don't remember. I don't recall. I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure what's going on. I have no memory. Uh, I'm barely barely here. But I'm excited about the show I put together today. Um, very excited about this. We're going to start uh, the show with uh, Enemy of the State. And this week's Enemy of the State is Michael Rubin, who is the C of the state, who is the CEO of Fanatics. And this is a, this is a specialty enemy of the state. 
Uh, most people probably don't care, although you should if you care about like business and small businesses in general, even though it might not be in the um, area of business that you work in. So Fanatics, for those of you who don't know, is a sports like memorabilia company. And they very in the past like year or two um, fully took over Tops, which is the number one. Uh, baseball card company that exists. It's been around since the 80s, before that, really. Um, when did Top start? I should know this. I have no no brain power today. So Tops, when did it start before that? I'm guessing 1938 in Brooklyn, New yeah, York. Yeah, I was like, it has to be before that because obviously baseball cards go way further back and they were the one of the first companies. Ooh, um, the company itself goes back to 1890 uh, when it was the American Leaf Tobacco Company. So was was top was tops the first baseball company, the first baseball card company. Yeah, because it started, and you can even get those. Those are some of my favorite cards um, to collect. The ones that came in tobacco boxes, like they'll be thinner, and like there's some really beautiful art on old baseball cards or old trading cards. Um, Eighteen sixty eight, Peck and Snyder, a sporting goods star store began producing trade cards with baseball teams. Interesting. They wow, we're learning so much on this equipment. episode. What? They would package them with equipment. So if you came in to get a glove, you would get a car. Ah, that's so cool. So they like, in, you know, invented that. I mean, I guess what, a, and what a, like, what a phenomenal, I guess they're used, they were using that to push their goods. And like in it, they created one of the most, uh, sought after pieces of all time in the sports trading card that's so exciting really really cool i love i'm so even though i'm not like a huge sports person um as i've stated many times i only, I only like basketball i just think um the trading card industry and the hobby um is so fascinating like that's the part of it i love i love collecting i love memorabilia i think it really um tells you a lot about a person, uh, the things that they collect. It's really revealing. And and I think that in a world where there's so much stuff, uh, sometimes we think stuff is meaningless, but stuff can have value. It's just that we have a surplus of uh, quickly made uh, low value items, you know, if, kind of like everything is fast fashion, whether it be our goods or our clothing um, or our concepts or our, or our political ideas <laughs> or the thing causes that we care about for the week, you know? So everything is related, guys. So anyway, uh, Michael Rubin, the CEO of Fanatics, is basically like, we, we were, you know, kind of like Donald Trump. I was like, let me, let me, you know, let's see. We can't stop this person from coming into power. So let's see what he does. And, you know, you hope, expect the worst, but hope uh, for the best. And m most times it's going to be the worst. And that's exactly what happened when Michael Rubin took over uh, Tops. He very quickly made the profit margins for brick and mortar stores like my own uh, just absolutely plummet. Because, uh, for instance, like my store, Perfectly Centered, is a Tops MVP store, which means we're the middleman, right? Okay, so Tops sells direct to us, and then we sell to the consumers. Uh, Michael Rubin did, started doing things like selling um, directly from the Tops website to consumers, which, I mean, fiscally, sure, a good idea if you want to put every brick and mortar out of business. And brick and mortar shops in the hobby have a lot to do with like, be, like being the face of the business, so, like more so than in other types of business, the baseball card store is a part of the experience, I would argue, right? Like I, you know, there are some things that it, it just feels good to go in the store, see it, touch it, look at it, especially in a um, an industry when the quality the, of the card is so uh, important. Um, 
So it very quickly became kind of apparent that he wanted to be like do what Amazon did, which they actually just had a class action lawsuit because of. Um, and I've been telling people that, and I was like, let me look up to make sure that I'm uh, that I'm accurate on that. But unfortunately, Amazon won that class action lawsuit, which that's you know doesn't bode well. But the government sued Amazon. If you you've probably heard about this, I think we went over it a little bit on this show. Um, and uh, Amazon claimed that the government had a warped imp- interpretation of America's laws and that its lawsuit threatens to hurt Americans, the economy and small business. Um, uh, and there, it, cause it was basically the difference between like the regular Amazon and like the flea market where they allow small businesses to sell items. The flea market part of Amazon is composed of millions of businesses, some of them in China that sell their own products on Amazon's website and app. Most shoppers don't notice or care whether the blender they're buying from Amazon came from the conventional store part of Amazon or from the flea market part that Amazon calls its marketplace. Buying from either part of Amazon uh, looks more or less the same to shoppers. And that's on fucking purpose. But Amazon's marketplace is at the heart of the government's claims that Amazon broke the law. Um, and so this is already over, but I'm just doing using it as a, as, a, as a comparison because Amazon's a lot more widely known to the everyday person than Fanatics is. You would only know Fanatics if you're specifically into that hobby. Uh, essentially, the U.S. government is alleging that Amazon uses an interconnected set of illegal actions to strong arm marketplace sellers in ways that drive up prices for consumers no matter where they shop. For example, the lawsuit claims that if companies that sell products on Amazon want to charge lower prices on their websites or at other retail stores, the company makes it nearly impossible for shoppers to find or buy their products on Amazon. In a response to the lawsuit, Amazon said businesses that sell products on its shopping site set their own prices independently. Amazon said uh, that like other retailers, it gives product sellers information to help them offer competitive prices. The government says that as a result, other stores can't compete on price and Americans pay higher prices than they would otherwise. The lawsuit also alleges that Amazon coerces merchants to pay for add-on services such as storing their products in Amazon warehouses, shipping their orders using Amazon delivery service uh, services, and buying advertisements promoting their products on Amazon's uh, website and app. Amazon says all those add-on services are optional, but the government lawsuit says that they're only optional uh, in name only. And, you know, this is Amazon, even like owning a brick and mortar, there's constantly like Yelp is really bad at this, where they'll make these phone calls to you that will sound like they're free or or that's something that you that you definitely need to even have your business on Yelp or Google does the same shit. And then you'll be, you know, 15 minutes into a phone call and you'll realize this is them just trying to get money from you to buy a service. It's really, really wonky shit going on. Um, when it's, you know, incredibly hard to sustain a brick and mortar. No, no, no one's, very few people are becoming a millionaire off their brick and mortar, right? This, these are just like regular everyday American people who were most times sick and tired of working for the man and said, I'm going to put in way more work to at least have my own vision be the storefront, right? Because that's what you're getting. No one who owns a brick and mortar is doing less work than someone in corporate America. I'm sorry. I'm not saying that you're not doing a lot of work in corporate America. I'm sure you are. Uh, doing a brick and mortar, uh, especially if you're comparing the money you're making, you're doing way more work when you work for yourself. Anyone who owns a small business knows this. Uh, But what you get 
in, you know, for, for putting that work in is you get ownership of your ideas, every, you, you get all the decision making, um, you can choose to abuse or not abuse yourself as much as you want, you know, all those things. Um, let's see, Amazon charges marketplace businesses a sales commission of something like 15% of the total price of a product. Amazon's commission varies by the type of product. And this is uh, pretty high, like eBay, um, so for, sorry, Alfred, I'm like kicking my dog accidentally under the table. Buddy, come on. Um, Amazon charges 15% of the total price of the product, which is really high. eBay, um, they kept knocking up their prices. And they're, I think they're at like 13% right now. And that's just like, it's just really, it's 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 making small businesses absolutely deteriorate. And we're already, you know, in a, whether it's been named or not named by the Biden administration, we're already in a recession. Yeah, thirteen percent from eBay. Yeah, and it's and it's it's staggering, and that keeps going up. All these fees keep going up. Like, uh, you know, another cost in a small business is like Square Terminal, uh, and of course you don't have to use Square, but like people want to pay with Apple Pay. That's what they want to do. Like, so many people want to pay with Apple Pay. If I didn't accept when I was a, for the first couple months of my store being open, when I didn't accept Apple Pay, I was actually losing customers because they just were used to only having their iPhone. With them and that was the only way they could pay right so then you need to use a product that accepts apple pay like square and their uh terminal fees are crazy um all right but because of other various fees that the government says aren't really optional the company typically keeps for itself more than 50 percent of the total product price according to estimates by e-commerce research from uh firm market uh place pulse which is that's criminal 50%, that's criminal. There's no way to sustain a small business if Amazon's keeping 50%. Um, and then there's a graph that shows third-party sellers make up um, a large portion of Amazon uh, revenue. Amazon's ability to profitably hike fees while ma maintaining its iron grip over sellers is further evidence of its monopoly power, the lawsuit said. Many of the allegations in Tuesday's lawsuit repeat years of similar complaints from some Amazon product sellers, many Amazon critics, and prior antitrust lawsuits against the company. There may be more detailed allegations that are hidden from the public. Some of Amazon's alleged illegal business tactics were redacted in the publicly available version of Tuesday's lawsuit. And again, I'm saying Tuesday, but this is from way back in September of 2023. Again, I'm just using it as a comparison. This is already over. But I think if you miss this story, this is a really important story, especially if you own a small business to know about, especially if you're on Amazon if you um, use Amazon, which we all do. Like, that's the joke. Like, we have now become accustomed to living in a world where sometimes you need that pack of toilet paper tomorrow and you're working until, you know, 9 p.m. and CVS closes at 8.30 p.m. And when you wake up in the morning, either you need to, either you're ordering it on Amazon or you're wiping your hand with an, you know, you're wiping your ass with an old McDonald's napkin in the morning, which I've done and I have nothing again, you know, no problem with that. Um, but like, you know, we're, we're working so much, um, and, you know, maybe maybe to uh, maintain our small business and Amazon realized that that uh, especially America specifically is an extremely overworked country. And they're like, let's take advantage of that by offering things available for the busy consumer, the busy uh, mom, the busy dad, the busy single person. Um at all hours of the day. But in that uh, making our life easier, they're also tearing down all, all, any small business. And if like. You try to have your small business uh, run on a website that's not Amazon. Like we we have now been trained to 
not want to pay for shipping. We've been trained to not want to wait five to seven business days to get something from a small business. And I mean, I'm talking about myself too. Even though I own a small business and I know what these companies are doing, you know, when I ordered uh, some fucking herbs for spells on Etsy and I'm, because I didn't want to get them on Amazon because just like the thought of getting something spiritual on Amazon made me want to blow my brains out. And so I got it from someone who was hand making everything, hand packaging like a, a, a you know a, a, a single woman owned business. I uh, you know I'm I'm waiting a week. I go I gotta get these spells cooking. I gotta get these spells cooking while the moon is in this phase. All right, just you know, and I'm making this specific to me. But whatever you do in your life, you know, we need things fast, and we are not willing to wait. But because of that. Our like our small business infrastructure is also crumbling to the ground. Like there's going to be nothing left. Like people come to New York City and they go, oh, it's all corporate shit now. We did that. It was our fault. That's like the part that drives me nuts. Everything that happens in society. I'm not saying we're at the forefront of it, but we are complicit in it. Of course we are. And sometimes we're put in a place where like, oh, we kind of like to to keep up. Like we don't really have a choice. Right. You know, you know, and then and then anyone who like chooses to shop at a small business likes to likes to make a big proclamation about it and walk around with a t- with a tiny crown on their head like they just saved eighteen uh, children from a burning orphanage. I've also experienced that a lot. Those are the same people who you know when they don't pull the card they want from the fucking panini set, uh, try to do a chargeback on American Express. These are very specific uh, problems that I'm t- talking about right now. But it's just like, you don't you don't deserve an award for shopping at a small business. It's a really nice thing to do if you're fiscally able to. But you can't then hold that over the person's fucking head who owns the business. Like then because you bought one thing one time from a small business and it cost $5 more than at Walmart that you now uh, have some kind of a stake in the company. Um, I know my small business owners out there hear me. And I know there's a lot of you actually that listen to the show. All right. So that's kind of what what was going on with Amazon. And I I would like to see Amazon. And there was several class action lawsuits, I believe. That was a small business related one. Uh, 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 uh. Can you see what happened? What like what was the like the the actual ruling, Michael, in that class action lawsuit? Uh, like just uh, succinctly. Uh, let's see. All right, so we'll get back to that. I'm just I just want to kind of like really uh, convey it properly. In the meantime, can you pull up that fanatics um uh fast company article? I love Fast Company, first of all. Fast Company is the magazine that like, I only read in the airport because that's the only time I see it. But it's a really interesting magazine if you ever are in like a Hudson News and want to do something good for your business. So after, you know, off, my, off the cuff, me comparing what Michael Rubin of, uh, of Fanatics is doing to small businesses, I actually found this article today from Fast Company that was literally just laying it out on the line saying Fanatics wants to be Amazon. And uh, I'm going to read that to you now. They have to pull it up for me here because I can't get past the paywall. All right. Let's see. Inside Fanatic's wild bet to become uh, to become the Amazon of sports. Right. And this seems like, ooh, what a great, exciting article. This is fucking bad news if you own a, a sports card store. Right. And this scroll down so I can see this fucking fuck guy's face. No, I'm sorry. Scroll up. Like, I want to see his stupid, his stupid face. Of course. It's always the same stupid fucking face. OK. Um, Fanatic CEO Michael Rubin created a thirty one billion dollar sports apparel 
uh, juggernaut. That's always a comforting word. Now he's adding trading cards, gambling, live events, and more. And also, yeah, make no mistake, your kids are all fucking gambling. Uh, Michael, whether it be with baseball cards or something else, and that's not what it really should be about. Like if you're a seven-year-old and you're trying to flip a a baseball card to earn $3 in school, like we're, we're... we're, it's not good. Things are not good. Michael Rubin, the billionaire CEO fanatic, splits his time between three primary residences, four if you count the new $70 million Pied-a-Terre uh, uh, in the Hollywood Hills uh, overlooking downtown Los Angeles. Uh, Tuesdays through Thursdays are reserved for his penthouse in, I mean, already, don't you want to just shank this guy? Are reserved for his penthouse in New York's Greenwich Village, not far from the main fanatic's headquarters. Thursday nights, it's back to Philadelphia where he grew up and where his eldest daughter is finishing high school, unless it's summer, in which case Ruben decamps to his 8,000-square-foot modernist mansion in Bridgehampton on the South Fork of Long Island, New York. I mean, the, with the, all those locations, it just shows money can't buy class. I mean, those are the locations you choose. You have four residences, and you're doing all America? You're lame. Uh, commuting is no fun for anyone. For an executive with a work and social calendar resembling a Pollock painting, traffic and other forms of quotidian delay are an even bigger menace, and Ruben eschews earthbound travel unless uh, absolutely necessary, preferring to fly everywhere he goes. So he's hurting the environment, too, whether by private jet or on fanatics uh, two helis, as he calls them. God, this guy is a fucking hand job. I'm in the air so much, he told me this fall. Every which way I die without it. On the second Saturday in September, Ruben took his jet from Philadelphia to a private air hangar near the Dallas-Fort Worth airport and then climbed into a rented uh, Tahoe, which carried him to the local Fanatics office. He then reboarded the SUV and drove a few more miles north to the site of the Dallas card show. Scroll. Um Let's see. Uh, Founded a decade ago as a modest 10-table swap meet, the card show is today one of the most important events for the multi-billion dollar sports collectibles industry, a sector that Fanatics valued at $31 billion and already the single biggest manufacturer and distributor of sports fan apparel in the U.S. is intent on dominating. Ruben waded into the scrum of the conference hall tentatively, his hands jammed into the pocket of his black jeans, although he's been celestially wealthy since 2011 when he sold his first company, GSA, GSI Commerce, to eBay for $2.4 billion. See, it's all interrelated. Ruben has an unassuming presence for a business mogul. Oh, you don't say. Someone who's a tiny little runt of a man is the one taking down small businesses. My mind is absolutely blown here. He's slender. Five, that's a, a nice way of saying a little runt. Five foot nine in sneakers with brown hair that he wears in a kind of modified crew cut. His most defining characteristic is his eyes, which are close set and densely lashed. Oh my God, this is an embarrassing article. Murmurs and nods followed him across the floor as did a camera crew assigned to capture footage for fanatics. I don't think of myself as a celebrity, he said, but I do get a fair amount of attention from young guys. (laughs) Okay, let's call it 20 to 30 years old because they think, okay, yeah, I want to be like that guy in business. Yeah, and that's and that is part of the problem. You want to be a little runt who couldn't who never felt powerful in any way. So he's going to so the way you feel power is by taking down all of America's small businesses and a beloved American pastime, which is sports card collecting. Fuck you. Uh, a few yards in. 
the first selfie seeker materialized. He was wearing a Cincinnati Reds jersey and an oversized plastic baseball helmet. Love what you do, baseball helmet man said. Thanks, brother, Ruben replied, smiling up into the iPhone lens. More murmurs, more nods. One selfie begets another and another at at infinitum. Infinitum. <laughs> Infinitum. Thank you. You know I don't ever say things out loud. Ruben posed dutifully for them all. Would he autograph a $100 bill? He would gladly. Would he talk about the Braves World Series chances? He would at exhaustive length. Would he accept a resume from a college graduate seeking work at Fanatics? He would with a caveat. I'll pass this along to the right people and see what they can do, he said. I'll try, brother. Yeah, he's going to throw it in the garbage in his limo when he gets there or in his Tahoe, whatever the fuck he corny ass car he's driving but he wants to look like the good guy right because that's what the people who are really bad do they never want to look like the bad guy in public that's what you know oh how cute are you alfred okay sorry my dog was just looking really cute Ruben, despite his uh, protestations to the contrary, has achieved an extraordinary degree of mainstream stardom in recent months partly owing to the Vert, this is a lot of heavy words in here. Vertid, and I couldn't read it ahead of time. Vertiginous growth. I Vertiginous. mean, it, it's like obviously like rapid, but why do we have to use it like that? Okay, but th- th- whoever uses this word because it's actually like the it's from the root vertigo, meaning you know, uh, causing you to be. Uh, out of bounds when you're uh, at a steep place. Like, I've never heard anyone use it in that way. Is this way. article British? Because they also use the word scrum, and I go, oh, I need to use that word more, and oh, it's coming up all British. Maybe. I just thought they were using business words the same way, like, in po- like I never know the political words. And I'm like, uh, is it British? I've just never heard. No, it's American. I think they're just, I mean, based on the article, they're just trying to be fancy. But okay, well, at least we know from the root word what that is. Um, uh, Fanatics, uh, an estimated $8 billion in revenue in 2023 alone, and largely due to his friendships with nearly every big name in the worlds of hip-hop and professional sports. James Harden and Joel Embiid, then NBA legends, are good pals, as is the rapper Meek Mill, whom Ruben successfully lobbied to have released from jail in 2018 and later pardoned on the original uh, bogus gun charges. When Ruben threw a 4th of July uh, white party at his estate on the Hamptons earlier this year, Meek and Harden showed up as did Justin Bieber, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Tom Radio, and Leonardo DiCaprio. All were clad in white. Usher played a set and Kim Kardashian knocked back 11 shots. TMZ called the bash a who's who of fame. But the attendees of the Dallas Card Show were far more interested in different developments. Fanatics known for making and selling licensed apparel for professional and college sports teams had acquired Tops, as I was just telling you, the trading card company in 2022. It had also recently moved into online sports betting. I think that's really, um, that's that's of note, right? Um, launched a uh, live shopping app and acquired PWCC Marketplace, a popular auction and sales site for trading cards and sports memorabilia. Depending on your point of view, these business moves uh, either made Ruben a heedless monopolist whose core products were beginning to suffer for sake of growth or the benevolent king of the most powerful empire in sports fandom. The previous night, in the kind of flex he specializes in, uh, Ruben had invited his friends Odell Beckham Jr. and Derek Jeter to a studio at Fanatics HQ in New York. Scroll. And... uh, 
uh, to open boxes of top cards, a break as industry insiders call it. I mean, it's not really in, it's just anyone who's in the industry. It's not industry insiders. It's called a break. Um, halfway through the live stream, he'd FaceTimed a different buddy, Tom Brady, who showed off a pile of jerseys from various points in his career. It's really all one customer base, Ruben told me in Texas. Look around the room. We know everyone here is into trading cards, but how many also buy licensed apparel and how many bet on sports? And in, you know, and in, in wink, wink, how can we get all these people to do all of these things? especially the gambling element. That's what you really need to think about. Um, he caught himself. Well, it's not legal in Texas yet. So how many bet, uh, bets on sports illegally? Probably a lot. Again, it's one customer base and we can reach them all. I think like gambling addiction is something that we kind of like don't talk about as much as we talk about um, substance addiction or other kinds of addiction. And um, it's on it's on the rise. I, I just I there's a lot of sports gambling that people because it's like on an app that people don't think of it as losing money in the same way. It kind of reminds me of that uh, episode of South Park, right? Right. Where they got like the Terrence and Philip app. Wasn't that what happened? They're collecting coins. Was it Terrence and Philip related? But it was some kind of thing. And they got all the kids hooked on gambling. And then they were like losing all this money. It and it was connected to Satan. Yeah, it wasn't gambling. It was uh, it was like just those addictive cell phone games. Well, yeah. But I mean, that kind of like. Or like on digital spending, right? Where where you're not actually uh, handing someone your credit card or you're not actually handing someone a dollar bill. So it's a lot easier to lose a lot more money quit more quickly because you don't feel like you're doing that monetary exchange. And I think that's what we see in the digital world with gambling, especially with young people. It, you know, it's kind of like, you know, crypto. You're like, is this real money or is this not real money? All right. Um... Let's see. Uh, oh, again, it's all on customer base and we can reach them all. Yeah, let's get them. It's like it's like the smoking industry. Let's get them all gambling the way we got them all smoking. Yeah, Ruben, a lot. And the, like, look how long it took them, us to realize we shouldn't be doing that. And so many people still do it. Yet Ruben allowed that he was smart enough to know the shit I don't know and a major part of the top's acquisition and deals with various leagues and players unions for the likeness of athletes from the NFL, MLB and NBA had involved schooling himself in the intricacies of the collectible market uh, card market. It's why I come to events like this, he said. It's important for me to hear um, what we're getting right. <laughs> Is it? But I like uh, getting beat up by people, too. When they tell me things we've managed to fuck up or get wrong, it doesn't bother me. You have to always be learning or you're dead. He's taking, like, the Barack Obama approach where he's going to be a go out and pretend to be a man of the people. But he's really he's really better than all of us, you know? And he knows it. And we know it. And if you don't, and if you think he's a man of the people, you've got and got. He stopped at a booth rented by Roadshow Cards, a collectibles business with stores in Texas, New York, Kentucky, and California. I'm familiar with them. There's one near my store. Be honest with me, Ruben said to Cody Krim, a proprietor. What could we be doing better? And the thing is, he's presenting this like as if Roadshow Cards is a small business. They are not. They own multiple stores, and they look to take down any small business that's within uh, you know s several miles of their business. So it's going to be presented like he's having a little conversation with a small person right now. This is false. I'm telling you this is false. They own multiple stores, and there are a couple stores like this that own multiple franchises that Fanatics does check in with um because they're in, they're all in fucking cahoots okay mm. 
What could we do, be doing better? Krim exchanged a, gla- a glance with his colleagues. How transparent exactly was he supposed to be? You guys are already a breath of fresh air, he began tentatively. Like the last CEO of the pre-acquisition tops, um, I never saw him in an office setting, let alone at a place like this. It's good just to talk to you. It's helpful. Was that staged? Was that was the script sent ahead of, of time? I told you, you could be honest, brother, Ruben said. Nothing I love more than a scrawny white guy who says brother. Um, After what appeared to be an agonizing and rapid series of mental calculations, Krim relented. Sometimes he allowed um, major Topps products uh, weren't hitting his stores on the day of release. This was a problem since a savvy collector might attempt to find the cards elsewhere. That is a big problem. Uh, Okay, Ruben nodded. Product on release day. Got it. We're on it. What else? And I mean, like, that's like the the bare minimum is getting the product on the street release day, as any fucking collector knows. Uh, I was book stupid. I really was, Ruben told me one afternoon this fall at his brick-lined office on the eighth floor of Fanatics headquarters on New York's Morton Street. I got an 800 on my SATs, 800 combined. How is that even possible? Did you just not take the test? Not just on one half. I hated school, but I believed I could out-hustle anyone. Okay. Michael's, and and again, be very, people tell you who they are. He just said, he literally just said in the article, in a quoted Fast Company article, Michael Rubin said, I believed I could out hustle anyone. People tell you who they are. Michael's not as educated as some suggested a communication staffer who was seated to his boss's left with his back to the Hudson River, but he's intellectually curious. He's calling me a fucking idiot, Rubin said. No, intellectually curious, the staffer said. He asks questions. Ruben could agree with this, always, he said. The tale of Ruben's ascent has been frequently told. The ski tuning shop he started out of his parents, I mean, everything. There is not one part of this article that's not annoying. The ski tuning shop he started out of his parents' basement as a teen in the suburbs of Philly. And it's also like, I guess there's enough rich people in Philly, but I'm like, yeah, when we think of Philly, we think skiing. Like, what? In the Northeast, only rich people ski. Only really rich people ski in the Northeast, um, which evolved into selling overstock ski equipment at malls and then overstock sports apparel in general. His early departure from Villanova with a GPA south of 2.0, which is crazy to spend all that money to go to a school like Villanova and get a 2.0. Ruben then founded Global Sports Incorporated, which included a woman's footwear brand. When he was 23, he moved into e-commerce management and launched GSI Commerce. GSI was a product of the early the internet era when corporations such as Toys R Us, Estee Lauder, and Bed uh, Bath & Beyond sold nearly all their products through brick-and-mortar storefronts. Ruben's pitch was straightforward. He and his team would build and manage the brand's e-commerce sites while also handling shipping and fulfillment Amazon, uh, allowing them to reach a vast new online audience. Soon, hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions were being shunted through GSI-run sites. As the company grew, so did Ruben's forays into licensed sporting goods. In 2002, he won the right to sell NASCAR-branded gear online. And in 2005, he reached a similar deal with the NHL. The NBA and NFL followed. Ruben told me that by 2011, the year GSI was acquired by eBay, the sports vertical of the company alone was seeing revenue north of $250 million annually. And so he has all these acquisitions in gear. And then keep in mind, um, I believe Panini, who is the... 
uh, front runner in uh, specifically uh, football and basketball trading cards, whereas Topps is uh, the front runner in baseball cards. They're also fucking suing um, uh, Fanatics for some reason or another. It, it, it's just like because they're take trying to take down all these companies. And I mean, but you know, Panini and Topps are by no means small companies. They're huge. They're huge corporations. But Fanatics is kind of trying to strong arm them all, a la Amazon. Uh, we had a strong foothold with professional sports, but not with like the NCAA, but there was this company in Florida that had been successful, uh, there. And so I flew down to see them, the company, a regional retail chain that sort uh, sold sports fan gear and had just moved into e-commerce was called fanatics. Ruben bought it more or less on the spot for $277 million. The brand was initially folded into the deal with eBay, but the auction site had little use for it. eBay brass didn't like the idea of competing with its own merchants. Shortly after the acquisition closed, Ruben arranged to buy Fanatics back at nearly 90, uh, at a nearly $90 million markup. Again, as he had in the early days of GSI, Ruben saw opportunity with Fanatics. My original thought was like, look, there's this little company in Seattle called Amazon and they kind of kill everybody. Again, this is something he's saying out loud. And they kind of kill everybody. And there is this other company in China called Alibaba. They're killing everybody else. Ruben was sure that Fanatics could attain something close to that level of success by focusing on selling to sports fans alone. Surveys regularly show approximately 70% of Americans count themselves as committed fans, but not in its current form. We didn't have a great point of differentiation, Ruben said, and I had the view that we'd be dead if we didn't completely transform the business. By the way, I was right. That reinvention ultimately hinged on how licensed fan gear was made and sold. For years, sports leagues outsourced manufacturing to various brands and their network of factories around the globe, and GSI sold it online. But there were some drawbacks to the setup, the most obvious being the speed at which the screen went out. Um, sorry, technical difficulties. I'll blow One my sec, nose. sorry. I'll blow my nose. Um, factories, uh, where are we? The speed at which apparel reached fans. So again, speed, you know, so the speed at which apparel reached fans, right? So I think a lot of times what happens is like, Hey, you don't, you're not a normal, you're like, you're a Knicks fan, but you don't go to games regularly. And then all of a sudden your friend got, gets tickets for three days from now to go to a big Knicks game. You want to feel part of the crew. You want to get that Knicks Jersey. You need it fast. Right? So that's, what's happening. They saw that issue and they were like, how can we, um, present a solution to that? Right. And certainly, just like the cost of shipping alone, uh, small businesses will never be able to compete because they will never be able to absorb that cost. Um, it almost seems like small, maybe the government and the U.S. Postal Service um, and small businesses should be kind of getting into cahoots in some kind of a program. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Um, factories take as long, um, and also printing, yes. Factories could take as long as nine months to make a line of jerseys, at which point a player might have retired or been sent back to the minors. Also, injuries uh, think that moves very quickly in sports and you know once someone's injured all their shit's not worth anything anymore if it's if they if it's an injury that they don't think they're coming back from that season leagues frequently found themselves awash in jerseys that no one wanted or empty-handed in the event an underdog team or player had a breakout season. Let's just make them ourselves, Ruben remembers thinking. Manufacturing wasn't quantum physics. It did require capital, but SoftBank and Silver Lake, among other investors, were happy to provide it. Beginning in 2012, Ruben requested meetings with the heads of the NFL and NBA and pitched them on his vision. Forget the network of factories. I'll make the apparel for you and I'll make it quickly in the space scroll up. Um, 
in the space uh, of weeks with endless amounts of customization. If Brady had another record-setting season, Fanatics could have nine variants of his jersey on sale by Super Bowl Sunday. If one day Taylor Swift fans happened to drive up sales of a certain Kansas City Chiefs jersey by 400%, Fanatics would be ready. I basically spent two years explaining to commissioners how they could uh, build their own better direct-to-consumer business, Ruben said. I said, your retail business will get bigger, and you'll get a bigger percentage of the sales, and we'll provide you with all this customer uh, data that you can use. No one ever said no, Ruben recalled. They just said yes slowly. And I mean, this is a good idea. I'm not pretending this is not a good idea. This is a great idea. It just depends like how many people you want to kill in the process, right? How many small businesses, how many uh, families you want to uh, make have to create like a whole new life for themselves. Again, but I mean, like this is this is what we all agreed on, upon. Uh, living in capitalism. So, you know, um, you know, I'm not I, I guess I'll I'll say I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Um, passion points. Uh, how Fanatics is expanding its empire to touch all parts of sports fans life lives. What is this part about? Is this is I don't think I necessarily need this part. I wanted the business part. I think this is more about like how the stuff is getting. Can you scroll down? Sorry, guys. Again, I just couldn't access this article ahead of time. So I couldn't skim through. But I knew it was something I wanted to talk about. It's getting like to the next bold part. Yeah, I don't think that's. I think I think basically we you you get the gist of the story. It's a lot of other people who are powerful in the sports world agreeing with this article's take. Uh, well, but but Rich uh, Kleinman saying, longtime manager of NBA superstar Kevin Durant, CEO of sports entertainment company Boardroom, uh, says I think Fanatics will be the Amazon of sports world. I really do. Right, like but I like mean, that. but I mean, like, okay, is there? Are are you seeing like, but being the, but it can mean that can mean different things to different people. When I say, when I hear fanatics is the Amazon of the sports world, to me that has a negative connotation. But I think many people can see that with a a, a positive connotation. P- pretty much universally, uh, uh, yeah. Universally, like, uh, what positive? Like, yeah, people in the sports world well, who uh, are going to be quoted in this article, right? Because they they're all in bed with this guy, so they have to be nice to him. It, well, it, it, exactly right. And anyone, and again, like you know, I know you know we all love our favorite superstars, but anyone fucking listed at that Michael Rubin party, I mean, like again, these people are all in cahoots. They're they're they they think of us merely as customers, um, and they just want to see how much more shit can I sell you, right? You know, are they artists? Are they athletes? Or are they really just fucking all CEOs trying to sell you shit? I need to think of more shit to sell. Right, Alfred? I think I, I think we need to think of more stuff. I don't like sell I don't like selling stuff to people. I like creating stuff. I just don't think it's fun unless you're I don't know. All right. There's also a nice little bit in here about how uh he gained a ton of money um yeah. by selling off a sixty percent stake in an NFT firm. Mm. So a little yeah. rug pull action. Well, yeah, and he also just kind of like dabbled in a lot of things that uh young wealthy uh white men tend to dabble in, and then he was like, one of these will hit, you know? But you can tell. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. You, you know he grew up rich when we we. And I'm I'm not saying he was as rich as he is now. Of course not. But he was like, uh, he had some sort of wealth. If he had a ski tuning business in his parents' basement, number one, to have enough space in your home to start a small business in your fucking parents' house. Number one, that tells me you're you're dealing with a large square footage. And number two, the fact that it's ski tuning in Philadelphia. That's this very small. Um, amount of people who are living in 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 a you know the 1% of Philadelphia P- broke people and middle class people aren't skiing in Philadelphia it's not happening i'm from that neck of the woods obviously no one no one except for rich people that's why i didn't ski until i was 30 years old because to go skiing for 2 days was you know like $3000 for two people um all right 
moving on. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to share that because he is the enemy of the state. Basically, what's happening right now is brick and mortars are falling apart. We kind of saw this happening for a little bit um, in our in our store. And uh, I mean, I had always started perfectly centered as a a, a passion project with a cap. I put a cap of five, max of five years on it for myself um, because it's you know it's just it was a, a side thing, a tribute to my father. Um, but unfortunately now, uh, it is time. It is time to leave the business. So I am going to be closing, uh, my store. We're still going to be online. Uh, but basically like we, me and John, we need to move on with our lives. We need to go on tour. We can't be there nonstop, especially when the brick and mortar is dying. Like it's time to, um, it's time to leap. And it's really sad, um, that brick and mortar can exist, uh, under these conditions in the sports card industry. When I think like, if you are a collector, like, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that's more thrilling than walking into uh, a baseball card store. Like, it's it's the same way. I feel the same way when I walk into, like, a baseball card store, the smell, the touch, looking at things that I feel when I'm walking into, like, you know, a Sephora. You know when you walk into Sephora and you're just like, whoa, this is so cool. It's so much. Sephora, the store, is so much cooler than Sephora online. You got to touch things. You can try things on. Like, that's to me, what baseball cards are, there are some things that just are better in a brick and mortar. Um, but unfortunately, the whole world is going to become Amazon now. And again, you know, I've talked uh, at length about this. I am I am not necessarily anti-capitalism because I, I do love the hustle. I love the hustle. I don't love to hustle people, though. And sometimes I feel that I never, unless I start lying and cheating, that I will never be able to get to that point. But I'm I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. So if you want to come to the store, um, we have like about a month and a half, I would say we're still going to be brick and mortar before we're online only. Uh, 1989 Palmer Avenue, Larchmont, New York. Um, but I mean, it is such a larger thing. It's the end of an era for my family, for sure. And uh, I'm, you know, I said to my mom the other day, I was like, I'm kind of glad my dad's not around to see this because I, I just, I think it would break his goddamn heart for um, not closing the business. Um I'm going to cry. Um, but what's happening to the industry? It's just like, sh it's shitty. It's like you have seven-year-olds coming in thinking they're day traders and it's fucking sad, dude. So like if you're, I don't know, if you're, you and your kids are into um, baseball cars or whatever, like you know, make sure people are like, enjoy childhood. Like make sure you're in it for the right reasons. If you're trying to like buy a card to flip it to gain $3 profit or if you see your kid doing that, like that's sad. That is that's a sad life. And then you're 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 going to you're raising a kid who's going to be unhappy, I assure you. Maybe a kid who's going to uh run a, you know, a multi-billion dollar company like Michael Rubin, but Michael Rubin's not happy. Okay, Jeff Bezos isn't happy. You see what they wear. Happy people don't wear those clothing. Hey, there responsible wackos over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. Do you want to get high? Do you want to get really high? Do you want to get really super I'm making these ASMR now. Well, now's the time to go to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high-quality lab-tested Delta 8. You guys, they keep buying ads on this thing because people keep buying this product and they keep going, wow, me likes this product. I'm going to buy some more because I am disassociating in a way that I never disassociated ever before. The proof is in the pudding. So if you're the over the age of 21 and living in the majority of states where this is legal, you're going to go to YoDelta.com and you're going to stock up on Delta 8. What's Delta 8? 
the jury's out. But what we can say is it's found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states to get you high. And that's really all you need to know, okay? At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stone needs. I can tell you that Delta 8 works and that these products should be taken responsibly, as should anything. So once more, that's YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gas Digital Network. And if you use promo code GAS, G-A-S, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, that's promo code GAS for 25% off. Yo Delta, home of the Delta 8 that will get you super high. Now, back to the news. I'm so sorry. I'm so sick. Okay. Um, all right. That's the, uh, that's the end of that. I think ugh, I'm just so fascinated by this business, but like, ugh, what a fucking learning experience it was. I, I, I loved it. I don't regret it for a second. I put so much, I put so much work into that <laughs> fucking store. What a, what a roller coaster ride, babies. Um, all right. This is from the, uh, wacko mailbag. Um, <clears throat> And again, I got so many emails this week and they're and I got to say the emails that you guys send into the show are so fucking great. It really makes me feel like um when I'm talking uh, that you're actually listening and I don't feel that way always. So, I appreciate you um and thank you for listening and and that doesn't mean sharing my opinions it just means using using your brain and critical critically thinking uh hi Corinne again it's without a country podcast at gmail.com if you want to send me an email with an article with a thought with a question to the masses whatever it is um but keep it related to the show obviously um it shouldn't be like is squirt pee um hi Corinne Big wacko from the start. Uh, your show and guys, we fucked are the only reasons I use Luminary's janky app. <laughs> Sorry about that. I use the Luminary app honestly all the time to listen to the C word and I don't ever have a problem with it. Um, as someone who considers themselves fairly politically informed but also aggressively opinionated, um, I can often fall into the trap of only consuming liberal news sources and having conversations with people whose politics I already agree with. Listening to your show, hearing the viewpoints of others that contradict my own, and um, being forced to dissect my opinions deeper is a really valuable exercise that I'm thankful for each week. Sometimes the things you or your past co-hosts say piss me off, and that's my favorite thing about it. Good. Um, I am... Oh my God, I'm so... I'm writing in because um, of a comment you made in last week's episode, um, number 211 from January 31st, while reading the article from The Hill about conservatives' Taylor Swift conspiracy theories. In response to a comment about using Taylor Swift as the poster child for pro-abortion campaigns, you responded that no one is pro-abortion, they are only uh, pro-choice, which is a super common mindset for many people that believe abortion is a human right. And it's kind of what we were trained in the past several years um, to say, specifically to say pro-choice, not pro-abortion. But apparently I'm already behind and things have changed yet again, as this writer is telling me. Um, However, I wanted to bring something to your attention that has been happening in the reproductive rights world regarding language. In 2022, I completed my master's degree and wrote my dissertation about the ways that humor and comedy are utilized in political movements, specifically the fight for reproductive justice and abortion access. I would love to read that. That sounds fascinating. Since graduation, I have been working for a nonprofit independent abortion provider in Ohio 
where we just recently succeeded in getting abortion enshrined in our state constitution, a story you briefly covered, which was an incredible win in a purple conservative-leaning state and one that has already begun to lay the framework for other states such as Florida who have been collecting signatures to get their amendment on the upcoming 2024 ballot. Even after years of extensive research into abortion activism for my dissertation, I always considered myself aggressively pro-choice and it wasn't until I began working in the abortion field That I learned about pro-abortion language and the difference between being pro-abortion and pro-choice. Well, I realize in this context, a conservative news source, the pro-abortion language was mostly used to try and paint uh, reproductive advocates as the baby murderers so many of them think we are. Exactly. And that's why I didn't like the language. I think it opened up a good conversation and point of education about the language used in the reproductive justice movement. The power of language has been a big topic of discussion in the reproductive world. Historically, an example being most reproductive advocates do not call people who are staunchly against abortion pro-life, which we know. um, If you listen to Guys We Fucked, you know that. Um, Easy to explain since those assholes don't care about anyone's lives, but instead use the language anti-choice, which better explains their stance. In short, the term pro-choice assumes that everyone simply has the choice to get an abortion. This fails to address situations, for example, of pregnant people who live in states with complete abortion bans and do not have access to the care they need. In these states, systemic power structures were designed specifically to remove individuals' abilities to make that choice, highlighting uh, the fact that you don't really have a choice at all if you do not have the freedom to execute it. For anyone listening, if you read this, no matter the laws in your state, there are ways to get an abortion. Yes, there's like literally like abortion boats that will come, you know, and dock that you can get to. Abortion pills can be mailed to you in all 50 states and abortion funds and practical support organizations in your area can fund your travel and get you to a clinic. The language of choice also perpetuates abortion stigma and erases the history of women of color who have experienced forced sterilizations and were subjected to inhumane experimentation by the so-called fathers of modern gynecology. Gross. Oh my God, if you want to talk about people of color being experimented on, not necessarily gynecologically or or, or women specific, but go on some tours in New Orleans. There's one house specifically that, I forgot the name of it, but it is alleged to be haunted because there was a doctor or scientist who was performing just the most outrageous human experiments on people and like it's said that their you know their souls haunt um that entire house as they should um in recent years some huge actors in the reproductive world have taken uh this language shift incredibly seriously one example being uh, NARAL Pro-Choice America, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, which is one of the largest abortion advocacy groups in the U.S. who changed their name in late 2023. And I actually didn't even know that because um, I guess it was a couple months ago to Reproductive Freedom for All. Uh, she goes, rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Obviously, language is just a small part of a movement. Um, and I do think like it is one thing that that really like that liberals spend more time on than conservatives language. And while obviously I'm the daughter of an English teacher, I think, and I'm a fucking stand-up comedian, I know how important the, the changing of one word can be in the landing of a joke or in 
you know, an apology letter and a love note. I get that. But I do think we spend a little more, too much time um, uh, as liber- as liberals just toying around with that with that shit and changing words. And it's like, how about we stop worrying about words and like get some things done? Because um, we decide one week that something offends somebody. Uh, uh, can you let Alfie out? to play with you sorry obviously language is just a small part of the movement and that there are also many arguments for the exact opposite of this stance that pro-abortion language may scare off individuals who are moderate or religious etc so as i uh as always i fully recommend that everyone uses their critical thinking skills and makes their own conclusions but i have included a few articles about this topic that i think and so there's more articles but i just thought the actual um letter was the interesting part of this and you know we can look into the articles later but i think she explained herself pretty well in the context um in the body of the email rather so now we know so now we can just say (laughs) pro-abortion all right now moving on to girl Oof. how are we doing here i would love i would love some kind of an injection um fuck man so this just broke trump is not this is from nbc news trump is not immune in 2020 election interference case appeals court rules trump is likely to ask the supreme court to intervene to further delay the trial in washington dc uh a federal appeals court on tuesday today rejected donald trump's broad claim that he is immune from prosecution for alleged criminal acts he committed as president in trying to overturn the 2020 election in a chain of events that led to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Trump will almost certainly immediately appeal to the Supreme Court in a bid to prevent the trial from going ahead as scheduled. The Supreme Court could make a quick decision about whether to hear the case, and it could fast-track any ruling. The court gave Trump until Monday to appeal before the lower court can act again. In a post on his social media platform, Truth Social, Trump called the ruling so bad and so dangerous, writing, a nation-destroying ruling like this cannot be allowed to stand. His campaign spokesman, Stephen Chung, said Trump respectfully disagrees with the D.C. Circuit's decision and will appeal it in order to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. Uh, The three-judge panel of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled that there was no basis for Trump to assert that former presidents have blanket immunity from prosecution for any acts committed as president. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution, the 57-page ruling said. Trump had argued in part that criminal liability for former presidents risks chilling presidential action uh, while in office and opening the floodgates to meritless and harassing prosecution, but the appeals court found that risk appears to be low. Instead of inhibiting the president's lawful discretionary action, the prospect of federal criminal liability might serve as a structural benefit to deter possible abuses of power and criminal behavior, the judges wrote. It would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity, their decision said. The case is one of four criminal prosecutions Trump faces, even as he remains the presumptive front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. I feel like I've honestly read that paragraph a thousand times during the, the life of span of this show. Just like I feel like every time it's that same paragraph. A key issue is whether the trial can take place ahead of the election. 
Special counsel Jack Smith had asked the court to move quickly to keep the trial on schedule. The March trial date had already been delayed indefinitely pending the resolution of the appeal. If Trump were to win the election, he would be in a position to either have the charges dismissed or potentially pardon himself. Trump's appeal, you shouldn't be able to pardon yourself. That's so wild. Trump's appeal arose from the four count indictment in Washington, including charges of conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. He has pleaded not guilty. Um, all right. Uh, we don't need to read any more of this. I think that's it. <laughs> and my dog's having a meltdown in there. Who's he mad at? Who's he mad at? sorry i'm trying to do this away from the mic but also when you're the only person on the mic you get you got to get back to the mic fast all right (laughs) i hear him bark you can send him back in here if he's being a bad boy it's unclear what he's upset about oh my god is there a ghost in the there's a ghost in there potentially yeah no the ghost of blind mike is haunting the kitchen oh he doesn't like blind mike yeah sorry (laughs) yeah Sorry, guys. There's a guy here um, named Mike who's literally blind, and we call him Blind Mike because that's just protocol, I guess. Hey, your dog's the ableist. (laughs) I will. Okay. I will say this. My dog does not like um, people whose body movements don't look like other people. So he is is ableist. Yeah. He is ableist. That's That's not incorrect. All right. He just wanted to say hey. Oh, he wanted to he's much it. quieter now. All right. Let him do what he needs to do. He's I, he, he's not had a, um, a fun day because I just laid in bed lifeless. Uh, all right. Moving on to the next article. This is another one. Okay. I'm just looking at time. All right. This is oh, this one I thought was so interesting. We knew this was happening, but the verdict for the Michigan school shooter is in. This is from CNN. Mother of Oxford, Michigan school shooter found guilty of manslaughter. Again, I don't know if this is one of those ones that I just really personally find super interesting, but I just think it's really setting an interesting precedent, especially for a country where we have so many fucking school shootings, right? And this is being updated live. Um, So uh, let's see. What's the best way to read this? Mm Mm-mm. Sorry. When they do the live updates, it, it it changes from like 10 minutes ago when I looked at it. Okay. So her sentence. So she was acute, um, found guilty of manslaughter. Her sentencing is going to be on April 9th. And damn. All right. So Jennifer Crumbly remained looking down during the verdict, a jury found her guilty of manslaughter following a 2021 Michigan school shooting in which her son killed four students. Uh, there were no audible reactions in the gallery, but there were some tears. Two rows in the gallery were reserved for family of victims. Crumbly left the sh- courtroom shackled. And what happens is, so basically, um, the shooter is dead. He killed himself, right? Yeah, they always do. Um, and so because... Uh, they were able to make a case that um, the parents knew that their child was having mental health issues. They knew that he had access to a gun, all these things. And we're going to, I think we're going to start seeing this more and more. Yeah. They were um, 
accused and Jennifer was now convicted of manslaughter. They are going to be tried separately. Originally, the husband and wife, I believe the the husband is James. Jennifer and James were going to be um, tried together, but then uh, they were having there was some infighting, and so they decided to charge them separately. And one of the points I read was that the last um, adult to be seen with the gun who the shooter then used to kill um, his classmates was Jennifer. And that was one of the jurors, uh, I believe, pointed out that that was kind of really what stuck out with her. I'm just concerned, especially because Jennifer was the one last seen with the gun and because mothers are notoriously held to a higher standard of parenting. I'm really interested to see what the outcome of James Crumbly's trial is is going to be. And if it reveals, um, you know, putting the onus more on uh, on the mother, as we so often see in parenting cases, like just we just feel as a society that the mom should be more on top of it. But apparently the infighting was because behind closed doors, Jennifer was accusing James um, of it being his fault that the son did that. I mean, obviously, ultimately, I think it's the son's fault that the son did that. But, you know, there were other variables that went into it. And then I was also thinking about, like, why there was infighting and uh, went back to that statistic that we've talked about on the show before that so many uh, marriages end after child death. So there was this statistic floating around initially that it was 80% of marriages end after child death. But I did a little more research on that today. And that seemed that that seems like that is an inaccurate percentage. And um, realistically, it's more like 16%, which is crazy, a, a big disparity. And again, why, why, as I always say, if you need a number or a poll or a statistic to back any point up, you can find one on the internet. Um, but uh, yeah, those are the two numbers that you see commonly. You see 80% or 16%. Um, and so I just think it's a, it, it's a bit lower than we initially thought. So it's, it's even more interesting to me now that this couple um, was fighting. Obviously, it's not just that their child died. It's that their child died and murdered a bunch of other people's children. So it's a little bit more complex than that. And that statistic um, doesn't handle specifically parents of school shooters. There's not enough, I don't think, to do that kind of a statistic. But maybe soon there will be. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. This is the parents talking. So Jennifer Crumbly was convicted of four counts of involuntary manslaughter this afternoon. She pleaded not guilty to all four counts for her role in the November 30th, 2021 mass shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan, which left four students dead and seven other people wounded, including a teacher. Here's what both sides argued during the trial. The prosecution argued Crumbly was responsible for the deaths because she was grossly negligent in giving a gun to her son, Ethan, who was 15 at the time, and failing to get him proper mental health treatment despite warning signs. I mean, I don't think a 15-year-old should have a gun unless they were in a shooting range with someone who is also licensed, like overseeing them. Like you shouldn't just be able to walk around a gun with a gun when you're 15. That's crazy. Your brain isn't even developed yet. Um, 
Over a week of testimony, law enforcement officials, school employees, shooting victims, and those who knew Jennifer Crumbly testified for the prosecution. The defense argued the blame laid elsewhere on her husband for improperly securing the firearm, on the school for failing to notify her about her son's behavioral issues, and on Ethan himself, who planned and carried out the attack on his own. I mean, I think that's the best point made there. A lot of, a lot of, bl- a lot of finger pointing and blaming. Yeah. Um, 15, if you shoot up a school, that's that's really on you. Um, defense attorney Shannon Smith said the case uh, was dangerous for parents everywhere. During her trial, Jennifer Crumbly took the stand in her own defense and said she wouldn't have done anything differently. OK, well, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> Feels like a weird response <laughs> when your son and other people are dead. Not even gave him a hug. Nothing differently? Well, the thing is, maybe, but the thing is, it seems like, it seemed like he had real, you know, not like, I don't want to say that your parents not liking you is not a real mental health issue, but I'm talking about like science, like like synapses not firing correctly mental health issue. And so I think he was loved seemingly, but maybe like he was loved in that way where parents are think oh nothing could possibly be wrong with my little baby boy right a love that is not helpful that's kind of how I read into this story so it's not that he wasn't getting hugs it's that he was getting hugs instead of help you know and and a hug is nice but not when your synapses aren't firing correctly um during yeah okay the big picture broadly the prosecution's case relied on an unusual and novel legal strategy and represents an attempt to expand the scope of blame in mass shootings again which is why this is so interesting to me because this is the start of it and I think especially because she was convicted that we're gonna see this a lot more right and like who knows maybe maybe this is gonna be we've tried we've tried and failed as a country many times um to stop mass shootings. So, I mean, maybe sending living parents to jail is going to be the final the final thing to stop it. Because I, I was really on the fence about how I felt about this because, you know, I'm really into personal responsibility. Um, and like, and I, oh, I mean, so much so that I created this space so I could be fucking crazy and not have it reflect on Christina. <laughs> like, that's how much into it I am. <laughs> I just like to be crazy in my own space and take all the fucking heat for it, right? Um but uh, I, uh, but yeah, and so I'm, I'm, I, I need to look more into this. But I think it's, it's an extremely interesting time. Um, in uh, it's gonna set a really uh, interesting legal precedent, and that's why I'm so interested specifically in this story. Uh, Crumbly's husband James is scheduled to go on trial on the same charges in early March. Yeah, and I'm really interested to see how that goes because of the reasons I listed. As I said, the blame game being play, uh, closed behind, played behind closed doors and the fact that um, this is being decided by a jury. And I just think that um, society gives men more leeway, especially white guys. And I just, whether or not we think we do, and especially when it's um, in the realm of parenting, we're, we're, we're way more critical of moms when something goes wrong with the kid, you know? So I, I think on the flip side, we give moms more credit when a kid is really amazing, right? We Mother's Day, much bigger holiday than Father's Day. But in the reverse, when something goes wrong, we're also blaming the mom a lot more. So I guess, you know, that's even. Maybe maybe we just, maybe we could just, there could just be a little more equality in that space, I think would be would be pretty nice. 
Um, all right, so that's that story. Um, gonna look forward to James Crumbly's trial for sure. Um, On the flip side, uh huh. Devil's Advocate. I would love to hear from you, Mike. Mike Carrington, girl dad, everyone. Dude, I and I and, and he's getting those Kobe's. Don't you forget it. <laughs> they are cute. How much are they? Uh, I mean, they're they're brand new Kobe's, so very ex- like three or more. I don't know. I feel like I feel like three is like what I would expect, but like then watch them be six. Yeah, I mean, you know, in they the, are beautiful. I'm not even a sneakerhead, and they are beautiful. I'm a shoe person, but I like like heels and stuff. But they are a beautiful pair of sneakers. Like the, it's like sea foam green, and it, and it, in the um in like what is that the tongue? It says uh, girl dad. Yeah, uh, one eighty, not bad. Oh my god! Yeah, that's a steal, Mike. Well. Send me the link. I'll buy them for you. Ooh-wee. Uh, my, I, I just I, I'll give you my credit card. I just don't want to have to fucking sit online pressing refresh. <laughs> That's what I don't want to do. I'll buy them for you. Because uh, wait, wait, your birthday's in March. It's in May. May. I, Baby's birthday's okay. in March. I knew it was an M month. I knew it was an M month. <laughs> well, I mean, you know the the yeah. I mean, also I knew it was, I knew it was in spring and I knew it was an M month. Aww. Okay. Um, That's awesome. Thank you, Corinne. But the so I was gonna say yeah. You got a kid who already is having you know obviously uh, mental illness. Yeah. Bad relationships with his classmates, yes. most likely, if it's yes. leading to a school shooting. <laughs> yeah. Nine out of ten times, yeah. that kid is also going to have a pretty bad relationship with his family. Mm-hmm. Now you're adding extra incentive. Oh, shit. And my parents, who I hate more than anything, are oh, going to have to take the blame for this one. Oh, very Ooh. interesting. That was that was so Maury Povich. Wow, that was Cash Me Outside. <laughs> I mean, that is... Whoa. <laughs> Like, you know what? I like, I, you know why you're important to this show? Because you think like a bad boy. <laughs> you think like someone who was a fucking pain in the ass to their parents growing up. And I was, couldn't have been more of a goddamn goody two shoes. Um, growing up, not, not anymore. But uh, as, a, as a kid. Um, damn. Very interesting. Very interesting. Wow. Always kind of a ball buster though. A goody two shoes, but, always, but I, I, I would get it. I would get myself into pickles. Mm. Let's see. All right. Nikki Haley. This is from NPR. Um, this makes me sad. I don't like Nikki Haley, but this 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 is shitty. Nikki Haley requests Secret Service protection after increased threats. I think we lightly talked about this last week. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has requested Secret Service protection following an increase in threats, according to a campaign spokeswoman. The request also comes after so-called swatting attacks, which we that's what we talked about last week, when people make false reports to law enforcement with the intent of provoking an emergency police response targeting her South Carolina home. The former South Carolina governor recently told NBC's Meet the Press that one of those incidents took place while she was away, but her elderly parents were at home, again, which we covered last week. Um... So this is just reiterating it, but now she has now officially requested uh, Secret Service protection. And I think she deserves it. This is absolutely ridiculous. And again, I just feel like, I don't know. I just feel like she's getting it in a, in a, in a way that we don't see um, male politicians getting it. I, I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say it. I mean, the fact that Trump's still walking around, that's, that's wild. No, it's not. It's because a liberal would have to uh, write the book about him. And we know that's not happening. They don't, they don't even know. They, they think AR stands for automatic rifle. Okay. Sorry. That was a no. We should have like a little. Maybe uh, if I'm sick again, we can have uh, no nose blowing music. <laughs> uh, 
boy. Okay, this is fun. Let's see. Go, moving on. Okay. Um, and then, okay, this next article, this was sent in by a bunch of you. And it's interesting because there was a similar story in Free Press. Obviously, that's a little more uh, of a... Um, nuanced interesting opinion here but this was an article that was shared uh about detransitioning an opinion piece but still in the new york times so i thought it was very interesting that the new york times uh shared this article and obviously a lot of you thought it was interesting too that the new york times shared this article because a many 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 of you emailed it to me i've i haven't had the same article emailed to me this many times um i don't think ever so one person, and one person particularly wrote an interesting message that I wanted to use to accompany this story. It said, I remember you covered a similar topic on Without a Country a while ago. The topic was about how Gen Z kids have been identifying as trans transgender at a higher percentage than other generations. Once these kids go through surgery, then there are few options to reverse it if they change their mind in the future. At least I think that was covered on uh, WAC. Um, we definitely carry, uh, we read in a free press article from someone who used to work at a facility um, that, uh, facilitated um, young people in the transitioning process and that she felt that people were not given pro given proper uh, mental health and like medical evaluations. But we've talked extensively about um, transgender folks on this show just because it constantly, even though it is such a small percentage of our population, it is something we constantly see coming up, especially from conservatives. It's this hyper obsession with it. So the writer says, I'm a member of the LGBT community. Although I do not identify as trans, I'm a cis queer female. I worked as a New York City high school teacher from 2016 to 2021, where I saw a large amount of my students come out as trans. As the years went on, higher percentages of Gen Z have been having body dysmorphia and social media has been all too quick to support, which is interesting because it's like, where is a good portion of that body dysmorphia coming from? It's coming from the same place that is then later supporting it. Anyone that said otherwise were are considered turfs. And that's a big problem. And that's and you know we don't stand for that on this show. We don't you cannot shut down a conversation by just calling someone a derogatory name, whether it be a liberal or a conservative or anything in between. It's that's an unacceptable way to conduct an argument, in my opinion. And I know so many people who, when you try to have a nuanced conversation about uh, transitioning or detransitioning or whatever or feminism or whatever the fuck it is, they, they think an acceptable way um, to respond is just by chanting, turf, 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 and it's not. And to me, if that's the only way you can respond, you don't actually have an, arg an argument with legs. You don't. You do not. Now that these kids are getting older, it's interesting and worrying to see how many of them are identifying with their birth gender. Transge uh, transgender people exist and always have throughout history. Of course, despite what many conservatives believe, that's kind of the interesting part about it. It was actually more prevalent, but also less talked about as a weird thing, you know, centuries and centuries prior. If you go Greek and Roman times like this was, you know, there are some cultures who have this, um, you know, this I don't want to say third gender, this third sex, I guess you would call it like there's like male, female. And then there's this third that's like common in some Asian cultures um, and you know, has been around and it's never been a problem. It's always been there. 
Um, however, undergoing irreversible hormone therapy and surgery is a serious decision that has otherwise seemed to be taken lightly the last decade or so, almost like a fad. And again, as I said at the top of the show, I do feel like we are in a time when, and I'm not saying this specifically about a transgender folks, I'm not saying it's a fad. I'm saying I think everything has is kind of in a, we're in fad times. What we wear, how we feel, who we support, it's changing quicker than ever before, right? Because we have access to information, but we're not willing to really do long, you know, long-term, you know, research, really dive into it. We're just getting little pieces and we're making really quick decisions based on these little pieces of information we get, breadcrumbs. I'm just one person, but that's my experience with this. Below is the New York Times article, in case you didn't see it. I thought maybe it would be an interesting topic to discuss. And I agree, it is. And so we will discuss it. It's an opinion by Pamela Paul. Let's look up Pamela Paul real quickly just to make sure she's not, you know, I don't know, a Nazi. (laughs) Um, I'm kidding. We use Nazi really loosely. That's why I said it. Okay. She went to Brown University. She's a white lady, seemingly, unless, I mean, she could be like, you know, listen, I know some people who are like Brazilian and appear to be white, so we don't know. Um, Or just appear to be regular regular old European white. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. She's a, an American journalist, correspondent, editor, and author. <clears throat> Since 2022, she has been a columnist for the New York Times. Um, she used to be the editor of the New York Times Book Review. And let's see. Her dad was a construction contractor. Her mom was a copywriter. Just kind of getting a sense of who she is. Yeah, she was. All right. She's kind of just like a regular person, regular journalist. It doesn't really seem like she's, it doesn't seem like any, there's anything like crazy coming out, out about her. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, there's some crazy responses to the article on both sides, but that's a different thing. All right. All right. So I just want to, I, I always, me and Joe used to do that a lot on the show. And I think it's helpful to see who's writing the opinions you're reading, you know? All right. So the title of this article, as kids, they thought they were trans. They no longer do. Again, opinion piece in the New York Times by Pamela Paul. Grace Powell was 12 or 13 when she discovered she could be a boy. Growing up in a relatively conservative community in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Powell, like many teenagers, didn't feel comfortable in her own skin. Big week on the show for Michigan. She was unpopular and frequently bullied. Puberty made everything worse. She suffered from depression and was in and out of therapy. I felt so detached from my body and the way it was developing felt hostile to me, Powell told me. Girl, I'm sorry if you're a boy now, but... But well, I'm guessing she's identifying as female now, but I was like, I just wanted to be like, girl, I hear you. At this point in the story, she is identifying as female. So girl, I hear you. It does. It feels, I, I, I 100% what, knows what she means. Uh, it feels hostile when you're going through puberty as a woman. I don't know what it feels like as a man, but it does feel hostile as a woman. Um, it was classic gender dysphoria, a feeling of discomfort with your sex. I don't think the thing, the hostility though, I've never felt, um, a discomfort with, um, with my sex as you know, I, as I talked about a lot, I have a lot of masculine energy, but I've never felt that I shouldn't have a pussy or, um, breasts or, um, that I am, should not be walking on this earth presenting female. I never have thought that, but I still for, but even so for me. Um, even still for me, puberty felt very hostile because specifically as a woman or as a girl come, becoming a woman, you it feels like a heavy responsibility. People immediately start treating you differently, reacting to you differently. 
um, sexualizing you in a way, and it happens so quickly, and it does feel hostile. All these things are your period. All these things are happening to you. You have these things coming out of your chest. I mean, not much for me, so there wasn't much transition there. But still, you have to wear a bra. It feels like it feels like you're. It feels like oh, you have to cover things now in a way that you didn't have to before. So I agree. The I agree with the hostility. It didn't make me feel uh, that I was not in the wrong body though but it, it felt like oh like almost like your body's attacking itself I totally get that so it's interesting that this particular person um you know felt that hostility and interpreted it as I am in the wrong body whereas I interpreted it as like oh man womanhood I'm I'm in for a bumpy ride you know and I'm, I'm not saying either is right or wrong. I'm just saying very interesting that we had the same experience but interpreted it differently. You know, life, baby. Um, reading about transgender people online, Powell believed that the reason she didn't feel comfortable in her body was that she was in the wrong body. Transitioning seemed like the obvious solution. The narrative she had heard and absorbed was that if you don't transition, you'll kill yourself. That is talked about a lot, you know. Um, at 17, desperate to begin hormone therapy, Powell broke the news to her parents. They sent her to a gender specialist to make sure she was serious. In the fall of her senior year of high school, she started cross-sex hormones. She had a double mastectomy the summer before college, then one off as a transgender man named Grayson to Sarah Lawrence College, where she was, that's the perfect college, where she was paired with a male roommate on a men's floor. At five foot three, she felt she came across as a very effeminate gay man. At no point during her medical or surgical transition, Powell says, did anyone ask her about the reasons behind her gender dysphoria or her depression? At no point was she asked about her sexual orientation, and at no point was she asked about any previous trauma, and so neither the therapist nor the doctors ever learned that she'd been sexually abused as a child. I wish there had been more open conversations, Powell, now 23 and detransitioned, told me. But I was told there is one cure and one thing to do if this is your problem and this will help you. Progressives often portray the heated debate over childhood transgender care as a clash between those who are trying to help growing numbers of children express what they believe their genders to be and conservative politicians who won't let kids be themselves. But right-wing demagogues are not the only ones who have inflamed this debate. Transgender activists have pushed their own ideological extremism, especially by pressing for a treatment orthodoxy that has faced increased scrutiny in recent years. Under that model of care, clinicians are expected to affirm a young person's assertion of gender identity and even provide medical treatment before or even without exploring other possible sources of distress. Many who think there needs to be a more cautious approach, including well-meaning liberal parents, doctors, and people who have undergone gender transition and subsequently regretted their procedures, have been attacked as anti-trans and intimidated into silencing their concerns. And that's the problem when you can't have an open conversation when it feels like bullying. And like, it's such a joke because you know how, uh, how it's uh, it's so often that the people who have been bullied become the bulliers which is what we see i think a lot unfortunately in the lgbt community there is no of course it's a community that has been bullied for fucking decades of course but what we see a lot is those same people becoming the bullies which is which is what we what you see 
anywhere. It's a, the bully in school is being bullied at home. It's, I mean, come on, everything is related, guys. Um, but um, when you can't have, when, when, Again, when you can't have a conversation, when someone's just shouting at you, turf or, um, you know, transphobe, uh, when someone's merely trying to voice a concern. I'm not saying when someone's calling you a fucking weirdo or something, but, you know, like a real a real concern or wants to have a real conversation and you're not willing to have that conversation like that's that is a problem. Um and while Donald Trump denounces left wing gender insanity and many and that's also not helpful, you know, just kind of brushing something off as crazy or insane like that's not helpful. And, you know, it's interesting that Dave Chappelle talks so much or, you know, kind of bullies the trans community so much, targets them so much when it was Dave Chappelle who was so hurt by people calling him crazy that he went away and didn't talk to anyone for 10 years. So it's really funny to see him kind of call these people crazy when that was the same thing that hurt him so deeply. Um, And while Donald Trump denounces left-wing gender insanity and many trans activists describe any opposition as transphobic, parents in America's vast ideological middle can find little dispassionate discussion of the genuine risks or trade-offs involved in what proponents call gender-affirming care. Yeah, gender-affirming care. Very light for what's happening. Very light description. Um, for the, you know, just like watch how many complications there can be with that. And I'm not even talking about like, oh, it's, you know, you should transition or you shouldn't. I'm talking about like how medically traumatic um, that that is um, and how many things can go wrong and the bleeding out. Like, again, what, what happened to Jazz on TLC? Pal's story shows how easy it is for young people to get caught up by the pull of ideology in this atmosphere. What should be a medical and psychological issue has been morphed into a political one, Pal lamented, during our conversation. It's a mess. And we see that all the time, things that are medical issues. And, and we see this with women, women's health care, that they become political arguments when they're really like life or death situations for real fucking living human beings. They're not, they're not a little tab on your, on your voting ballot. A new and growing group of patients. Many transgender adults are happy with their transitions and whether they began to transition as adults or adolescents feel it was life-changing, even life-saving. The small but rapidly growing number of children who express gender dysphoria and who transition at an early age, according to clinicians, is a recent and more controversial phenomenon. Laura Edwards-Leeper, the founding psychologist of the first pediatric gender clinic in the United States, said that when she started her practice in 2007, most of her patients had long-standing and deep-seated gender dysphoria. Transitioning clearly made sense for almost all of them, and any mental health issues they had were generally resolved through gender transition. But that is just not the case anymore, she told me recently. While she doesn't regret transitioning the earlier cohort of patients and opposes government bans on transgender medical care, she said, as far as I can tell, there are no professional organizations who are stepping in to regulate what's going on. Most of her patients now, she said, have no history of childhood gender dysphoria. Others refer to this phenomenon with some controversy as rapid onset gender dysphoria in which adolescents, particularly tween and teenage girls, express gender dysphoria despite never having done so when they were younger. Frequently, they have mental health issues unrelated to gender. While professional, and this is interesting that it's particularly tween and teenage girls who are expressing gender dysphoria, because that would be the same age group that is um, experiencing um, uh, much more body dysphoria in this age of social media. And I think that's really interesting to note, right? 
Frequently, they have mental health issues unrelated to gender, while professional associations say there is a lack of quality research on rapid onset gender dysphoria. Several researchers have documented the phenomenon, and many healthcare providers have seen evidence of it in their practices. The population has changed drastically, said Edwards Leeper, a former head of the Child and Adolescent Committee for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the association responsible for setting gender transition guidelines for medical professionals. For these young people, she told me, you have to take time to really assess what's going on and hear the timeline and get the parent's perspective in order to create an individualized treatment plan. Many providers are completely missing that step. Yet those healthcare professionals and scientists who do not think clinicians should automatically agree to a young person's self-diagnosis are often afraid to speak out. A report commissioned by the National Health Service about Britain's Tavistock Gender Clinic, which until it was ordered to be shut down, was the country's only health center dedicated to gender identity, noted that primary and secondary care staff have told us that they feel under pressure to adopt an unquestioning, affirmative approach and that this is at odds with the standard process of clinical assessment and diagnosis that they have been trained to undertake in all other clinical encounters. Exactly. So it's like, in short, if you just walked in and said, I have ADHD, we know that only a doctor who's like, a fucking criminal who is uh, making money off prescribing way too many people Adderall is just saying, okay, yet if someone walks in and says, I'm transgender and you question it the way you would any fucking diagnosis made by a non-doctor, all of a sudden you're a hateful person. Make it make sense. <sighs> I, I, I use the, the nose blow as punctuation for that one. Of the dozens of students she's trained as psychologists, Edwards Leeper said, few still seem to be providing gender-related care. While her students have left the field for various reasons, some have told me that they didn't feel they could continue because of the pushback, the accusations of being transphobic, from being pro-assessment and wanting a more thorough process, she said. Um... They have good reasons to be wary. Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist in Oregon, was trained in gender-affirming care and treated multiple transgender patients. Okay, so that's literally like what she's doing with her fucking life. But in 2020, after coming across detransition videos online, she began to doubt the gender-affirming model. In 2021, she spoke out in favor of approaching gender dysphoria in a more considered way, urging others in the field to pay attention to detransitioners, people who no longer consider themselves transgender after undergoing medical or surgical interventions. She has since been attacked by transgender activists. Some threatened to send complaints to her licensing board, saying that she was trying to make trans kids change their minds through conversion therapy. In April 2022, the Oregon Board of Licensed Professional Counselors and Therapists told Wynn that she was under investigation. Her case was ultimately dismissed, but Wynn no longer treats minors and practices only online, where many of her patients are worried parents are worried parents of trans identifying children. I don't feel safe having a location where people can find me, she said. And isn't that shitty? Detransitioners say that only conservative media outlets seem interested in telling their stories, which and that's another problem, too, which is why I'm so glad that they did this piece in The New York Times. Right. Because we don't want to associate. De-tran- I think it's dangerous to associate detransitioning 
which is an option some people make. It is not the norm um, with conservative views because that makes people not want to read it. It makes people think that it's fucking made up shit. Propaganda, right? Um, which has less them. Uh, detransitioners say that only conservative media outlets seem interested in telling their stories, which has left them open to attacks as hapless tools of the right, something that frustrated and dismayed every detransitioner I interviewed. These are people who were once the trans-identified kids that so many organizations say they're trying to protect, right? Yeah, exactly. When it was like, when it was um, in vogue, favorite thing of the show, when it was in vogue and when it was... Um, you know, uh, when it made the left look cool, we'll use these trans kids. They're doing the same fucking thing with trans people that they do with black people, honestly, on liberals. We'll use you when it suits us for our needs to make us look good and progressive. And then when you disagree with us, we'll send you back to the right. That's what I mean. That's what people do. Look, look at how um, uh, black journalists are just absolutely crucified black journalists who are Republican more so than all these white people. It's, it's one of my fucking biggest pet peeves. And listen, I don't like can necessarily like Candace Owens either, but like she just, and I mean, on top of that, she's a woman. So she's a black woman and she's conservative. Right. And I, listen, I think she says a lot of, you know, um, incorrect, uh, things, but not any more than so many other people, um, and because she is a, a, a black uh, woman not doing the bidding of the, the liberal left that they want her to do, all of a sudden she's enemy number one. I think that sucks. Um, let's see. Uh, most parents and clinicians are simply trying to do what they think is best for the children involved. But parents with qualms about the current model of care are frustrated by what they see as a lack of options. Parents told me it was a struggle to balance the desire to compassionately support a child with gender dysphoria while seeking the best psychological and medical care. Many believed their kids were gay or dealing with an array of complicated issues, but all said they felt compelled by gender clinicians, doctors, schools, and social pressure to accede to their child's declared gender identity. Yeah, it's like maybe you're just like a, a lesbian who wants to dress in men's clothing, even if they had serious doubts. Um, there, you know, and also I think there, there are also, um, several lesbians I know who do like bind their breasts, but they don't want their breasts removed. They just feel more comfortable out in the world by binding their breasts. Right. There are, because there's just so much nuance to how you appear in public, how you present. They feared it would tear apart their family if they didn't unquestioningly support social transition and medical treatment, all asked to speak anonymously, so desperate were they to maintain or repair any relationship with their children, some of whom were currently estranged. Several um, of those who questioned their child's self-diagnosis told me it had ruined their relationship. And I mean, I got to I got to be honest, I, I do think this like uh, estrangement when we don't agree, that, I think that's also the doing of the left. I got to be honest. I feel like the left really encouraged people not fucking don't talk to your parents if they don't agree with you, if they don't completely align with you politically. That is a, that is a left point of view. And I'm not saying that that uh, people parents on the right aren't bullies to their liberal kids and don't try to like get a rise out of them because also that's happening. Also, that's happening. Um, a few parents said simply, I feel like I've lost my daughter. One mother described a meeting with 12 other parents in a support group for relatives of trans-identified youth where all of the participants described their children as autistic or otherwise neurodivergent. Yet another variable. To all questions, the woman running the meeting replied, just let them transition. The mother left in shock. Can you fucking imagine? Can you fucking imagine that being your answer? Can you imagine? 
Wow. The mother left in shock. How would hormones help a child with obsessive compulsive disorder or depression? She wondered. Some parents have found refuge in anonymous online support groups. There, people share tips on finding caregivers who will explore the causes of their children's distress or tend to be their overall emotional and developmental health and well-being without automatically acceding to their children's self-diagnosis. Many parents of kids who consider themselves trans say they're like, there's so many things that are like are so hard even for a medical professional to diagnose as far as things that like look, look similar, like, um, you know, bipolar disorder, uh, you know, uh, multi, uh, multi, uh, multiple personality disorder. Um, there's one other one in there like that. They're often misdiagnosed. So can you imagine you're just coming in with a self-diagnosis? You have not even a second of schooling. Uh, many parents of, Kids who consider um, themselves trans say their children were introduced to transgender influencers on YouTube or TikTok, a phenomenon intensified for some by the isolation and online cocoon of COVID. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking wild things. Co- fucking COVID was when I was when I made an appointment to get uh, breast implants, and then I and then I because I was just bored, and then I was like, what the fuck? What? Do I, why would I do that? Why would I do that? Why would I do that? I just I I, I got a for not a, I didn't make an appointment for um breast implants I made an appointment for uh a consultation and then I was like because I just had too much time and I was like talking to my friend and her she got those new gummy bear titties and goddamn did they look good and they felt good but then I was like what are we what are we doing and then I and then I actually that I've solved all my health crises and um lost weight and I was like that's what I wanted I just, I just, the bigger boobs would have just made me look skinnier. I just wanted to feel like myself again. And so I thought the boobs would make me more proportionate, right? And they would have, but that's like a quick fix. The real fix, the health fix was getting my fuck, fucking autoimmune disorder in check. And I did that. And now I have zero. My boobs are smaller than ever because I'm, because I'm at my like re- regular weight. And, but I don't care. I don't care. You know, it's great. I haven't worn a bra since COVID. Never felt better. Um, Others say their kids learn these ideas in the classroom as early as elementary school, often in child-friendly ways through curriculums supplied by trans rights organizations with concepts like the gender unicorn or the gender bread person. And also, I'm not comparing uh, getting a, um, your breast implants to um, transitioning. But, I mean, they're a little related. Um and then Gomu uh, says, do you want a dead son or a live daughter? After Kathleen's 15-year-old son, whom she described as an obsessive child, abruptly told his parents he was trans. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's very, as someone with OCD, it is very, it, the obsessive part, really pay attention to that. Um, the doctor who was going to assess whether he had ADHD referred him instead to someone who specialized in both ADHD and gender. That seems like you shouldn't be doing both. Um, Kathleen, who was asked to be identified only by her first name to protect her son's privacy, assumed that the specialist would do some kind of evaluation or assessment. That was not the case. The meeting was brief and began on a shocking note. In front of my son, the therapist said, do you want a dead son or a live daughter? Kathleen recounted. It is, I, I think it is really um, alarming that therapists are using things that we see uh, like on bumper stickers and on memes, you know, this, do you want a dead son or, or, or a live daughter? We've heard that tossed around a lot. I don't want my mental health care professional using the same language I'm using on Instagram. I really don't. Sorry if you guys saw Scott, I'm really trying here. Um, parents are routinely, 
<laughs> I'm trying so hard here, guys. Um, parents are routinely warned that, that to pursue any path outside of agreeing with a child's self-declared gender identity is to put a gender dysphoric youth at risk for suicide, which feels to many people like emotional blackmail. Proponents of the gender-affirming model have cited studies showing an association between that standard of care and a lower risk of suicide. But those studies were found to have methodologic... methodological flaws or have been deemed not entirely conclusive. A survey of studies on the psychological effects of cross-sex hormones published three years ago in the Journal of Endocrine Society, the professional organization for hormone specialists, found it could not draw any conclusions about death by suicide. In a letter to the Wall Street Journal last year, 21 experts from nine countries said that survey was one reason they believed there was no reliable evidence to suggest that hormonal transition is an effective suicide prevention measure. Moreover, the incidence of suicidal thoughts and attempts among gender dysphoric youth is complicated by the high incidence of accompanying conditions such as autism spectrum disorder. As one systematic overview put it, Children with gender dysphoria often experience a range of psychiatric comorbidities with a high prevalence of mood and anxiety disorders, trauma, eating disorders, and autism spectrum conditions, uh, suicidality, and self-harm. Um, But rather than being treated as patients who deserve unbiased professional help, children with gender dysphoria often become political pawns. Here we go. Conservative lawmakers are working to ban access to gender care for minors and occasionally for adults as well. On the other side, however, many medical and mental health practitioners feel their hands have been tied by activist pressure and organizational capture. They say that it has become difficult to practice responsible mental health care or medicine for these young people. Pediatricians, psychologists, and other clinicians who dissent from this this orthodoxy, believing that it is not based on reliable evidence, feel frustrated by their professional organizations, the American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, have wholeheartedly backed the gender-affirming model. In 2021, Aaron Kimberly, a 50-year-old trans man and registered nurse, left the clinic in British Columbia where his job focused on the intake and assessment of gender dysphoric youth. Kimberly received a comprehensive screening which he embarked on his own <coughs> when he embarked on his own successful transition at age 33, which resolved the gender dysphoria he experienced from an early age. But when the gender-affirming model was introduced at his clinic, he was instructed to support the initiation of hormone treatment for incoming patients regardless of whether they had complex mental problems, experiences with trauma, or were otherwise severely unwell, Kimberly said. When he referred patients for further mental health care rather than immediate hormone treatment, he said he was accused of what they called gatekeeping. Oh, my God. I love how, like, TikTok words are coming into med- medical health care. That's crazy. Gate- gate- gatekeeping, as if uh, making sure someone has proper co- proper medical evaluation before transitioning is the same as, like, me not telling you what lipstick color I'm wearing. I really I realized something had gone totally off the rails. Kimberly, who subsequently founded the Gender Dysphoria Alliance and the LGBT uh, Courage Coalition uh, coalition to, uh, to advocate better gender care, told me. 
Gay men and women often told me they fear that same-sex attracted kids, especially effeminate boys and tomboy girls who are gender non-conforming, will be transitioned during a normal phase of childhood and before uh, sexual maturation. Yes. And that gender ideology can mask and even abet homophobia. That is really that is really interesting. That's saying, yeah, that's really, that's a really interesting point. Wow. Uh, as one detransition man now in a gay relationship put it, I was a gay man pumped up to look like a woman and dated a lesbian who was pumped up to look like a man. If that's not conversion therapy, I don't know what is. Fascinating. I transitioned because I didn't want to be gay. Casey Emmerich, a 23-year-old woman and detransitioner from Pennsylvania, told me. Raised in a conservative Christian church, she said, I believed homosexuality was a sin. When she was 15, Emmer confessed her homosexuality to her mother. Her mother attributed, um, and again, um, this is going to go longer than Legion of Skinks is going to come on, um, I think, right? But uh, just uh, the rest of it will be on YouTube if you're if you're watching live or um, or on the audio. Um, her mother attributed her sexual orientation to trauma. Emmerich's father was convicted of raping and assaulting her repeatedly when she was between the ages of four and seven. But after catching Emmerich texting with another girl at age 16, she took away her phone. When Emmerich melted down, her mother admitted her to a psychiatric hospital. While there, Emmerich told herself, if I was a boy, none of this would have happened. Interesting. In May 2007, and a lot of times, I mean, as anyone um, familiar with uh, childhood uh, rape, assault, molestation knows a lot of times those same those people, depending on who they were molested by, will grapple with their sexuality um, later in life and their mind will play tricks on them. But that's not like homo like it's not homosexuality. It's like trauma, which is a completely different thing. And it's, it's not that they're uh, trans. It's that they they have unpacked. They haven't unpacked the trauma yet. Um. In May 2017, Emmerich began searching gender online and encountered trans advocacy websites. After realizing she could pick the other side, she told her mother, I'm sick of being called a dyke and not a real girl. If she were a man, she'd be free to pursue relationships with women. That September, she and her mother went with a met with a licensed professional counselor uh, for the first of two 90-minute consultations. She told the counselor that she had wished to be a Boy Scout rather than a Girl Scout. She said she didn't like being gay or a butch lesbian. She also told the counselor that she suffered from anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. And also, like, kids are smart. They know what to say to get what they want in, a, in an office. The clinic recommended testosterone, which was prescribed by a nearby LGBTQ health clinic. Shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with ADHD. She developed panic attacks. At age 17, she was cleared for a double mastectomy. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm having my breasts removed. I'm 17. I'm too young for this, she recalled. But she went ahead with the operation. Transition felt like a way to control something when I couldn't control anything in my life, Emmerich explained. But after living as a trans man for five years, Emmerich realized that her mental health symptoms were only getting worse. In the fall of 2022, she came out as a detransitioner on Twitter and was immediately attacked, which is crazy. That's that's this person's personal experience. How can you be attacked? This is what I went through and this is how I feel about it. There's 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 not really an argument for that transgender influencers told her she was bald and ugly she received multiple threats i thought my life was over she said i realized that i had lived a lie for over five years eh. Eh. 
you 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 thought you were living a lie before you were trying to do what was best for you you know today emmerich's voice permanently altered by testosterone is that of a man when she tells people she's so wait if you permanently altered it you can't you can't like then almost like transition back as if you were a man transitioning to a woman you can't take hormones to reverse that that's only in that direction i feel like really in like from people that i know that are on hormones it's like if you like once your voice is deeper it can't go up like that's why it's so much easier for like female to male trans people to like blend in because their voices change but that's the problem with like male to female trans yeah. people is that their voices don't, don't go up that's so interesting that the harm that the hormones don't work both ways for in that instance wow i didn't know that um when she tells people she's a detransitioner they ask when she plans to stop taking tea and live as a woman i've been off it for a year she replies once after she recounted her story to a therapist the therapist tried to reassure her if it's any consolation the therapist remarked i would never have guessed that you were once a trans woman emmerich replied wait what sex do you think i am Oy vey. to the trans activist dictum that children know their gender best it is important to add something all parents know from experience children change their minds all the time one mother told me that after her teenage son desisted pulled back from a trans um identity before any irreversible medical procedures he explained i was just rebelling i look at it like a subculture like being goth I don't think that's the norm, but I, you know, it's interesting that at least some people are feeling that way. The job of children and adolescents is to experiment and explore where they fit into the world. Yes. And a big part of that exploration, especially during adolescence, is around their sense of identity. Uh Uh-huh. Sasha Ayed, a licensed professional counselor based in Phoenix, told me children at the age um, at that age often present with a great deal of certainty and urgency about who they believe they are at the at the time and things they would like to do in order to enact that sense of identity. And again, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but even something like I you know, like you know, tell me I'm sure you know or maybe you yourself like went by a different name in high school. Like all of a sudden you wanted people to call you Rain even though your name was Cynthia, you know? Cuz you wanted to be more interesting. And again, I am not at all saying that m- most people who transition are doing it to be more interesting. Not saying that I don't believe that to be true, but I I do think people who are transitioning not only need but deserve a proper medical evaluation, a, a proper mental evaluation. They deserve that, right? Don't we want everyone to be living their truth and living? And and how often in our lives have we thought, oh, I've discovered my truth, only to realize. We didn't discover our truth, and we discovered something later that was truthier than that original truth. Ayed, a co-author of When uh, Kids Say They're Trans, A Guide for Thoughtful Parents, advises parents to be wary of the gender affirmation model. We've always known that adolescents are particularly malleable in relationship to their peers and their social context, and that exploration is often an attempt to navigate difficulties of that stage, such as puberty, coming to terms with the responsibilities and complications of young adulthood romance and solidifying their sexual orientation she told me for providing this kind of exploratory approach in her own practice with gender dysphoric youth ayat has had her license challenged twice both times by adults who were not her patients both times the charges were dismissed studies show that around eight in ten cases of childhood gender dysphoria resolve themselves by puberty and 30 percent of people on hormone therapy discontinue its use within four years though the effects including infertility are often irreversible proponents of early social transition and medical interventions for gender dysphoric youth cite a 22 
2022 study showing that 98% of children who took both puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones continued treatment for short periods. And another study that tracked 317 children who socially transitioned between the ages of 3 and 12, which found that 94% of them still identified as transgender five years later. But such early interventions may cement children's self-conceptions without giving them time to think or sexually mature. Um, all right. This goes kind of goes on and on, but I think we, we, we got it. This is an extreme. And I also want to point out, this is an extremely long opinion piece for not only on this topic, but for the New York Times in general. Right. So the fact that they gave this much page space to this topic to me is saying like, wow, I think maybe the left is really, you know, figuring out that just yelling turf is not the way to have a conversation about these things. And yes, they're they're citing throughout here. Most people who transition are happy with the transition. They're happy with that decision. But as with everything, it's like we have to worry about everyone. You know, we can't just be like, well, this is most most people are happy, so it's fine. So we can just be kind of lackadaisical about it. Right. Most people are fine. What about the people who aren't fine? You know. Think of all the time we've dedicated to in the and this is going to sound insensitive. I don't mean it that way. But think of um, all the the time and energy that we um, not not we, but uh, you know, the world has uh, dedicated to bringing, in the big scheme of things, not a large amount of hostages home from Israel, right? But then on the flip side, think how many people in Palestine were killed because these hostages weren't brought home, right? And so it's just like. Is this a numbers game or are we, are we concerned about humanity in, in total and everyone having the best life? Like, I don't know. I, 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 the world likes to go back and forth. Sometimes it feels like a numbers game. Sometimes we're very, um, we're, we're very invested in, you know, a single person. Um, all right. And then I have to get through this pretty quickly. This is really quick. This is my Corinne Fisher's party topic of the week just because you guys have been loving this. This is from Al Jazeera. It's something that I didn't even uh, know about until today. But we, I think because we are, we've been spending so much time talking about Israel and Palestine because the U.S. is so involved in that, I said, why don't we get a little party topic of the week from another country? And on Al Jazeera, it says, Kenya religious cult leader, 29 others charged with the murder of 191 children. And if I can't think of a better party topic of the week, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I can't. This is it. This is this is going to bring any party to a screeching halt, right? The 191 children were among the 425 victims found in the Shakahola Forest in coastal Kenya last year. Kenyan cult leader Paul, I looked up how to say this, Paul Entengay McKenzie and 29 associates were on Tuesday charged with the murder of 191 children whose bodies were found among hundreds of people buried in a forest. And it's like, that's kind of what I mean. Where's the outcry for this? I didn't even know about this until today. The defendants all denied the charges brought before a court in the coastal town of Malindi near the Indian Ocean. One suspect was found mentally unfit to stand trial and has been ordered to return to the Malindi High Court in a month. Prosecutors said McKenzie ordered his followers to starve themselves and their children to death so that they could go to heaven before the world ended in one of the world's worst cult-related disasters in recent history. You guys love a cult. The former taxi driver, 
turned self-proclaimed pastor, anything is possible, has already been charged with terrorism, manslaughter, as well as child torture and cruelty. He was arrested in April last year after bodies were found in the Shakahola forest. Autopsies revealed that the majority of the 429 victims had died of hunger, but others, including children, appeared to have been strangled, beaten, or suffocated. The case, dubbed the Shakahola Forest Massacre, led the government to flag the need for tighter control of fringe denominations. A largely Christian nation, Kenya has struggled to regulate unscrupulous churches and cults that dabble in criminality. There's your Corinne Fisher Party uh, topic of the week. And now our main story it seems like maybe we're closer to a truce with, between Hamas and Israel than we have been before. Because I don't, I mean, I, it seems like it's not really like a, a liberal, liberal conservative ish. I mean, kind of, but what I'm doing this week is I'm doing Al Jazeera, um, uh, not verses, but Al Jazeera and times of Israel. Right. So this is from Al Jazeera. Qatar says Hamas response to truce, uh, truce proposal, generally positive on a visit to Qatar. Top us diplomat, Antony Blinken says Hamas's response to a truce proposal has been shared with Israel. Mediator Qatar says Hamas has given a generally positive response to a proposed truce deal with Israel as the Palestinian group reiterated its demand for an end to the Israeli assault on Gaza. During a press conference on Tuesday with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Qatar's Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman bin Jassim al-Tani described uh, Hamas's reaction to the proposal as generally positive without providing more details. Blinken said Hamas's response to the proposed uh, proposal brokered by Qatar, Egypt, and the United States has been shared with Israeli officials. Blinken is on a lightning tour of the Middle East and said that he would discuss the response with Israel's officials when he visits the country on Wednesday. Speaking to reporters in Doha on Tuesday, Blinken said the deal is essential. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we continue to believe... <coughs> that an agreement is possible and indeed essential, and we will continue to work relentlessly to achieve it, he said. Hamas said in a statement that its leaders had reviewed the comprehensive ceasefire deal with a positive spirit, including details on securing relief and shelter, reconstruction, the lifting of a 17-year-old crippling siege, um, and the completion of the prisoner exchange process. Qatar has been working with the U.S. and Egypt to broker a truce that would involve an extended halt in fighting and the release of hostages held by Hamas. PM Sheikh Mohammed Al-Tani said there are a number of challenges that mediators are facing throughout the talks and that events on the ground in Gaza affect the course of the negotiations. We are hoping to see it yielding and yielding very soon, he said. The proposed deal was drawn up more than a week ago by U.S. and Israeli spy chiefs at a meeting with Egyptian and Qatari officials. Hamas said, had said previously that any deal must bring about a definitive end to the war. Israel has not uh, has said it will not halt the war permanently until Hamas is destroyed. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office said Hamas's response to the deal is being studied by all parties involved in the mediation process. Hamas's reply has been conveyed by the Qadari mediator to the Mossad. Its details are being thoroughly evaluated by the officials involved in the negotiations. A statement from Israel's foreign intelligence agency, the Mossad, um, said on Tuesday per the office of the prime minister. 
And then they look into possibly a 40-day truce. Sources close to the talks have said that the truce would last at least 40 days, during which fighters would free civilians among the remaining hostages they hold. Further phases would allow to hand over soldiers and the corpses of hostages in exchange for the release of Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. And if you saw today, it seems like a lot, um, a good portion of the remaining Israeli hostages are dead, like a higher number than Israel uh, originally thought, which obviously not great news, but a lot of fucking people are dead. It's fucking brutal. The only truce so far in November was initially agreed um, for just four days and extended to last a week. At the time, Hamas released 110 hostages in exchange for 240 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Most of the besieged enclave's 2.3 million population is displaced. Uh, facing severe shortages of food, water, medicine, and shelter, with the majority of Gaza now in ruins following nearly four months of Israeli bombardment. Israel began its military offensive. Okay, we don't need to go. We don't know the backstory. Okay, that's that's enough. They love to give the backstory of the story that we know already. And then moving on to what the Times of Israel says. Um, this is by J Jacob Magid. Um, While U.S. won't say it wants ceasefire, it seeks humanitarian pause uh, it can turn permanent, which is very interesting. Um, I guess the U.S., you know, feels it's a weak move to say they want ceasefire. U.S. US plans to use uh, truce to advance post-war plans, officials say, indicating they won't back subsequent resumption of fighting, even if it means allowing Hamas to remain in some form. And that kind of remind me, you know, of like post 9-11 world. It's like, are we just going to stay in this and continue to lose soldiers and civilians to try to eradicate um, a group that like once they're once they're relatively power powerless, you don't have to fucking kill every member. I mean, it's just such it's so overboard. As for the Israel Hamas, uh, as the Israel Hamas war reaches its fourth month, the Biden administration is sticking firm to its stance opposing a permanent ceasefire in the Gaza Strip with Hamas still intact, publicly at least. We don't believe that right now a general ceasefire is the best approach, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said in late January, explaining that it would leave in place Hamas terror leaders who have vowed to continue perpetrating devastating attacks like the October 7th onslaught. Uh, instead of a permanent ceasefire, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reiterated Sunday that Washington is seeking a sustained pause in hostilities to get the remaining hostages out of Gaza and funnel more humanitarian aid into the Strip. However, the administration is also hoping to use this still elusive extended power. Oh, boy. Um, I got to read. Some crazy shit just happened to my computer. Can you put it up on here? I have to finish it on here. Um... However, yeah, however, the administration is also hoping to use the still elusive extended pause to negotiate. Uh, sorry, the screen went out. <laughs> this Always is, the moments you need it the most. This is Hamas. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, can you scroll up? Because I was at the beginning of that paragraph. Yeah. However, the administration is also hoping to use the still elusive extended pause to negotiate a more permanent ceasefire in Gaza, ending the fighting for good. A senior U.S. official told the Times of Israel on Monday would allow the administration to advance regional initiatives that include an Israeli-Saudi Arabia normalization agreement and the creation of a political horizon toward an eventual Palestinian state. If we get a humanitarian pause, we want to be in a position to move as quickly as possible on the various pieces of day after reconstruction uh, of uh, 
uh, Gaza, Palestinian Authority reform, govern, governance of uh, Gaza, two states, normalization, some of which are obviously quite difficult and quite complex, said a second senior U.S. official who briefed reporters en route to, re, sorry, I don't know how to say that, Riyadh with U.S. Secretary of State, yeah, Riyadh, Riyadh uh, with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Monday. The first U.S. official clarified that negotiations for humanitarian pause and a hostage deal are not on the cusp of a breakthrough, given that Hamas has not swayed from uh, its demand for a permanent ceasefire and a complete withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza, both non-starters for Jerusalem. Um. Uh, an Arab diplomat familiar with the negotiations said mediators are hoping to break the impasse by including language in the deal for an extended pause that would see Israel commit to holding talks during that time on a more permanent ceasefire. However, the diplomat expressed concern that public statements from P Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, such as comments last week rejecting any withdrawal of troops from Gaza or the release of thousands of Palestinian security prisoners, could risk scuttling the fragile negotiations. Go Please. Um, with much of the U.S. President Joe Biden's foreign policy credibility ahead of this year's presidential election hinging on the successful navigation of the complex regional crisis, Blinken is using his visits this week to Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, Israel and the West Bank to help move the hostage talks forward and reassure both foreign and domestic audiences that the U.S. has no intention of allowing the fighting to widen. Yeah, like we don't we don't want this shit to happen again. Um, in the absence uh, of a hostage deal, the war risks dragging on indefinitely, all but torpedoing talks for a Saudi normalization uh, agreement, which Riyadh has said it won't sign if the fighting is ongoing. And without a normalization accord, uh, there is no clear pathway to a Palestinian state, given that the Gulf Kingdom is conditioning a deal with Israel on progress toward a two-state solution, a more ultimate U.S. foreign policy goal. While the U.S. aims to utilize the pause to negotiate a more permanent end to the fighting, left unsaid is what would happen to Hamas. The Biden administration's approach suggests an expectation that the terror group will remain in some form. Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders have vowed to continue the war until the quote, total defeat of Hamas, and the U.S. says it's, uh, it supports removing Hamas from power. Okay. <laughs> this pile of tissues is so gross. Um, can you scroll down? Uh, the Arab diplomat uh, noted that regional stakeholders have already come to terms with the prospect that Hamas may remain active but are seeking frameworks in which the terror group would not be able to continue ruling Gaza. Accordingly, some degree of military operations against Hamas operatives, whether by Israel or a third party, may continue after the war, the diplomat speculated. Uh, a third U.S. official indicated that the Biden administration does not have a lot of confidence in Netanyahu's handling of the war, citing his rejection of the Palestinian Authority retaking control of the Strip. The prime minister's far-right coalition partners are pushing for resettling Gaza with Israeli civilians, encouraging its Palestinian residents to emigrate and maintaining a military occupation on those who remain. It's like, do you not learn? Policies that Netanyahu says he opposes and ones that would strip Jerusalem of any remaining support from Washington. Accordingly, the premier has avoided bringing discussion regarding the day after in Gaza to the cabinet, even as IDF chief of staff Herzeg Halevi warns that this risks foiling Israel's military gains in Gaza. 
The third U.S. official argued that Netanyahu has thwarted regional efforts to have a new administration put in place in parts of northern Gaza cleared by Israeli troops late last year, allowing Hamas to once again fill the vacuum. In recent days, the Israel Defense Forces has had to send troops back into the area to fight off the resurgence of Hamas activity. Despite the Biden administration's mounting frustration with Netanyahu, it hasn't yet decided to take more adversarial line um, against him publicly. Uh, said the official. There are those in the administration calling for a more aggressive use of the political capital Biden gained from Israelis due to the diplomatic and military support he provided after October 7th, the official noted, adding that such voices are growing. Biden's executive order spurring first of their kind sanctions against violent settlers could well have been the first sign of that approach gaining tra uh, traction in Washington. Um, all right. And so now you're all caught up in Israel. It is exciting. This I feel like this is the closest we've been in these four months to actual like you know Al Jazeera and Times of Israel saying like okay I think we're maybe nearing a truce I think maybe we can settle this I think it's enough is enough everyone's fucking dead like what are we even fighting for at this point um but uh I guess we'll see because you know I don't want to get too hopeful this has been going on for decades and decades and decades and decades anyway that is our show thank you so much um for joining me again sorry for all the nose blowing i really tried my best but i figured that you guys would would want an episode more than you would care about the nose blowing um and i'm here to give that to you if you want to see uh, me live los angeles we added a second show for valentine's day there's like 12 tickets left for the 8 p.m show if you want to nab one of those at the comedy store on valentine's day for guys we fucked the experience it is such a fun show it's like the best thing to do on valentine's day i can't think of like a more fun thing to do so either you can go in lieu of dinner you can go or you can go to this 10 30 show that we added um after dinner which is great um or maybe you want to go out for drinks and then you go or you want to just like take a nap after work and then you go to the 10 30 show whatever it is you want to do to make your night fun and special we have an 8 p.m show with 12 tickets left as of this airing and uh, a 10.30 p.m. show that was added. Um, so definitely if 8 p.m. didn't work for you, go to that 10.30 p.m. show. Both shows are going to be completely unique. So fuck, go to both of them if you can. Um, and then uh, March 1st is the next uh, Guys We Fucked Live in New York City. That's a... Uh, no, sorry, not March 1st. March 7th. Um, I apologize. It's March 7th. It's Thursday, March 7th at 7 p.m. That's the next uh, Guys We Fucked Live in New York City at the MasterCard Midnight Theater. These shows are so fucking fun. And this is going to be the first one with our new producer, Eric Freddy. So make sure to grab a ticket to that because I think we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus for New York after that because um, I'm going to be on the road for a while. And then Washington, D.C., as you know, I'm in you at the D.C. Comedy Loft February 29th through March 2nd with Chloe LeBranch featuring. I have a much larger tour where I'm going to a bunch of cities that's going to be announced very very soon. But in the meantime, grab those DC tickets. DC shows are always so fucking fun. If you live in the area, um, definitely do that. If you're in, you know, like, you know, Virginia or whatever, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going there. So come, you know, not that I have anything against it. I'm just not booked there. I know in my head what my, my dates are. I just can't announce them yet. Um, so come on, um, to DC. If you're in Baltimore or Virginia or any of those kind of kind of close places come to the dc show i think it's going to be worth the trip make a little weekend of it with your friends you know go see me go to the holocaust museum whatever you need to do make it a fun time uh thank you so much for listening to the show 
Follow Without a Country podcast on YouTube, on Instagram. Follow me on all social media at Philanthropy Gal. Listen to my other podcasts, guys. We fucked the anti-slut shaming podcast. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts and full video on YouTube. And have a great day. Use your critical thinking. And just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean that you like don't have to be friends for the rest of your life. I don't think that's necessary. Bye. Where shall you miss cabbage?